0: Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, June 14th, and quite a day it was yesterday, and quite a day it is ahead. Former President Uh, Trump defiant after pleading not guilty to 37 federal charges related to his handling of classified documents. Here are the major developments you need to know this morning. Trump delivered a speech to supporters at his golf club in New Jersey last night, where he claimed he, quote, did everything right.
1: During the 45 minute arraignment in Miami, he did not address the court. He sat hunched over with his arms crossed and, according to reporters in the room, a scowl on his face. Also in the courtroom, special counsel Jack Smith. The New York Times reports it was the men's first encounter no words between the two were spoken.
0: The judge ordered the former president not to speak about the case with his longtime aide, Walt Nada. Nada is, of course, his co-defendant and he is set to appear in court again in two weeks.
1: And there's also new reaction from 2024 Republican contenders. Former Vice President Mike Pence told The Wall Street Journal he can't defend Trump's alleged conduct. And Nikki Haley said she'd be inclined to pardon the former president if he's convicted. CNN This Morning starts right now.
0: It was such a such an important day. Um, such a striking day, and then to hear the president's response last night to all of it.
1: Just how fast things commingled from the legal to the political, not that they were ever separate, but if you ever had any doubt about how things were going to be going over That's the exactly. course of the next couple months, very abundantly clear last night.
0: That's exactly right. We'll talk about all of it. We'll fact check the president's, former president's remarks from last night. But Donald Trump shifting right back to campaign mode, as you were alluding to, uh, after becoming the first former president in U.S. history to be arrested, On federal charges, he claimed innocence and he raised money. Just hours after pleading not guilty to those 37 felony counts in Miami, Trump gave a primetime speech at his golf club in New Jersey. It was full of misleading claims, many false claims, including this one.
2: Whatever documents the president decides to take with him, He has the right to do so. It's an absolute right.
1: This is the law. Federal prosecutors are accusing Trump of illegally hoarding classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, including some of the nation's most sensitive nuclear secrets, and then hiding them repeatedly from the FBI. They say he showed them off to people without security clearance and haphazardly stored them in places like a bathroom and his bedroom. We once again have team coverage this morning. Elena Treen is at Trump's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. Former prosecutor Jeremy Saland and Semaphore Politics reporter Shelby Talcott are standing by for analysis. But I want to start with Sarah Murray and Trump's post-court speech last night. Uh, Sarah, the former president, not denying that he took the documents, that he had the documents, What is he saying in his defense?
3: No, he's saying that these are his documents. He had every right to take them. But it was pretty clear that Donald Trump was not excited to be in court yesterday for his second indictment since he left the White House. Former President Donald Trump maintaining his innocence in the face of 37 federal charges related to his alleged mishandling of classified documents.
2: I hadn't had a chance to go through all the boxes. It's a long, tedious job. It takes a long time, which I was prepared to do, but I have a very busy life.
3: Trump speaking before a crowd of supporters at his Bedminster golf club, capping a historic day that included the first federal arraignment of a former president.
4: We can't just deny what, what President Trump did was wrong. I mean, it's clear as day wrong.
5: And I don't care whether you are a Trump supporter or a Trump opposer. You have to take this seriously.
3: Trump surrendered at a federal courthouse in Miami Tuesday afternoon. His attorney telling the court on Trump's behalf, we most certainly enter a plea of not guilty. In the courtroom, Trump sat with his arms crossed at a table flanked by his two lawyers. Trump did not address the court. Also seated at that table, his aide and co-defendant, Walt Nauta. Nauta could not enter a plea because he did not have a Florida lawyer present. Of the 37 counts Trump faces, some are for obstruction, but most are for the willful retention of national defense information.
2: Threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law.
3: The judge presiding over the arraignment did not impose any travel restrictions, but told Trump he could not speak to any of the potential witnesses in the case. Trump's attorney objected, insisting many of the witnesses in this case are people employed by the former president. The judge clarified that Trump could not speak about the facts of the case with any of the witnesses, including Nada, and asked prosecutors to provide a list of the witnesses in the case. Also present in the courtroom, special counsel Jack Smith, though he did not speak during the hearing. Trump was greeted by a crowd as his motorcade left the courthouse. He made an unannounced stop at the famous Cuban restaurant Versailles in Miami's Little Havana, where he was met by dozens of supporters. He entered the restaurant with Nada by his side and spoke to religious leaders. After the indictment, Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, spoke about the charges after previously urging the Justice Department not to indict the former president.
4: And I have had the opportunity to read the indictment uh, that was filed. I can't defend what's alleged. These are serious allegations. And the handling of, of classified materials, as I learned in my years as vice president and my years on the Foreign Affairs Committee, is a very serious matter that bears upon the national security of the United States.
3: Now, let's not overstate where the Republican Party is at right now. Phil, we've still heard mostly from Republicans who are defending the former president, but we've heard from more people in the past 24 hours who are caveating their sort of unequivocal support of Donald Trump when it comes to this indictment.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch it play out. sir. Mary, stay with us. You're stuck with us once again. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> I want to bring in Jeremy Solan uh, and Shelby Talcott. And Shelby, I want to start with you kind of on that point. Um, you've been in Bedminster. You're around kind of the Republican primary and the zeitgeist of that primary. Uh, After the president's remarks last night, what were you hearing from Republican officials?
6: I think the big thing is, in terms of the people running against the former president, is this is just something that they want to move past, um, which I think is natural because it is a no-win situation for any of the candidates running against him. They are kind of forced to walk this very fine line between, do we defend Trump? Because that's what the base wants us to do. Or do we come out and say, yeah, look, this is these are really serious charges and he did something really wrong here. I don't know if I can pardon him if I become president. Um, And so the, the major theme I was hearing was, "Okay, the day is over. We are moving on. We are continuing to campaign. Let's not talk about this again. Well, good luck with yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, <laughs> to respond, good luck. That's yeah, going to be a great strategy. Essentially. Can't wait to see it's that play out you. It's nicer than that. It's
0: Minnesota.
7: Was. Was. I
1: There's a lot of Midwest.
0: I thought this was interesting. Let's play the sound where Trump, in, in his many defenses last night, talks about, you can't do this. It's election interference. He is the Republican frontrunner. Here he was.
2: This is called election interference and yet another attempt to rig and steal a presidential election. More importantly, it's a political persecution like something straight out of a fascist or communist nation.
0: Let's address the first point he made there. You can't do this. It's election interference because this is a criminal trial. He's going to have to be in the courtroom. Right. For all of this. Correct. So depending on this calendar where it goes, what motions there are that delay things. Does he have a point? At least it could be argued that how can I be campaigning, et cetera, if I'm in the quorum?
8: I think the response to that is probably rhetoric. And I would want to say nonsense because I can appreciate his concern. But that would be his statement no matter when this investigation began. That's fine. But looking at the facts in the
0: calendar. They can really bump up against each other, no? They
8: certainly can. And I think that's one of the reasons why probably Jack Smith would like to see this happen sooner rather than later. That discovery, I'm sure, is ready to go. And after that two-week period comes and the other co-defendant is in and they go before the judge and is arraigned, I expect that th- that procedure is going to move as quickly as they can. But Trump's team is certainly going to try to delay it for the reasons you just stated.
1: Sir, I'm interested. We've all become Presidential Records Act experts yes, over the course of the last several weeks because what else do we have to do in our lives? Um, but I think what's important, and we've talked about this over the course of the last several days, it's never actually mentioned in the indictment. It is not related to this indictment directly in terms of what the special counsel put together. And frankly, uh, it, it doesn't apply here because these documents that the president took were not his documents or his personal records. However, this was how the president framed things, former president framed things last night.
2: threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done, is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law. As president, the law that applies to this case is not the Espionage Act, but very simply the Presidential Records Act, which is not even mentioned in this ridiculous 44-page indictment under the Presidential Records Act, which is civil, not criminal. I had every right to have these documents.
1: So the only thing the president said in that sound you just heard that was accurate is that the PRA is civil, (laughs) not criminal. Nothing else was accurate. Why?
3: I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, first of all, Donald Trump's not going to go to prison for 400 years. We should disabuse him of that notion. So that's not going to happen. Secondly, if you look at what they actually charged in this indictment, they narrowed down the scope of the documents they took. I mean, we know that they took more than 100 documents with classified markings. And what they're charging him with is the willful retention of national defense information. So they have looked through All of the various things that Donald Trump took, you know, whether it was photos, whether it was notes from meetings and they have whittled it down to what is classified national defense information that we think is actually going to resonate with the jury. That we, you know, can get the approvals on to be able to show the jury where we think, you know, we're not going to so badly compromise American national security that we can make some of this available to jurors, but where they're still going to look at this and just be
0: horrified.
1: And these are the records of these agencies not the personal records. Yes, they're of the
0: not the personal which records. That's a critical of Trump. piece of this. Jeremy, uh, the, the judge saying you can't talk to your co defendant, they're alleged in a conspiracy between the two, Walt Nada. What's interesting, we'll just weigh in on that, but also the fact that prosecutors now are ordered to present a list of who else they think Trump can't talk to. And I wonder if Evan Corcoran, one of his attorneys who's also a witness, would be on that list. But he has to talk to Evan Corcoran because he's defending him in the January 6th probe complicated. I, I
8: don't think it's so atypical to have the judge make the determination with his co-defendant. They could ultimately have a joint defense agreement and things could change, but I don't think it's that atypical. And the judge wants to ensure the integrity of this process and not run afoul of that. And we know and we've heard from other cases, meaning in New York and just in general, that the president or former president has done these things. That list is an effort to find a compromise to the judge to make this work that understands that the former president has a right to defend himself he has a First Amendment right, mm-hmm. but also weighing the balance to make sure that there is no tampering and there is no issues. And there is a concern, I think, for at least the prosecution that there may be something on paper that says what the president or former president can't do. But no one is there in all those rooms when he is by himself for any defender, for that matter. But it is a, it is a real concern. And that's why this has been implemented.
1: I think that's a really good point, because Shelby um It was striking. The prosecution did not ask for uh, the restrictions that were put on Walt Nata talking about the case with Mm -hmm. the former president. Um, And the judge implemented them anyway. And yet, Walt Nata was with the president walking in. You saw in that video we were just showing Walt Nata right behind the president. For people who don't necessarily understand how the former president's universe operates, what is Walt Nata's role?
6: He's essentially now Trump's personal aide. Um, and the interesting thing was I was talking to aides last night at Bedminster, uh, and one of the questions I asked was just confirming whether or not Walt had returned with Trump on his plane. And the reaction when I asked that question was kind of like, well, of course he did. Why wouldn't he? Um, and so that was and kind of is interesting. This after the
0: judge ordered that.
6: Yes. And then uh, we also discussed kind of the relationship between Walt and Trump and the, the overarching... Um, organization. And Walt was described as now, of course, you know, we were discussing this earlier, uh, whether or not this is accurate, he's going to want to keep Walt very close to him at this point. Um, but he was described as somebody who is very close to the president, extremely well-liked within Trump world, um, and essentially part of the family was the description that I got.
1: Mm. Yeah, and, and one of the few, and, and Murray, you've covered Trump for years, who doesn't seem to be in it for personal gain or trying to kind of like grift on the side, which I think is probably to some degree helpful. But also you could see in the video, he's literally changing the pens the president is using to sign things. Like that's his role is to know the the Trump's whims and how he operates and all that. Yeah,
3: I mean, this is a very close relationship. It's a personal relationship. It's a close physical proximity relationship. And I do think Shelby's totally right that, you know, you're talking about someone who is really ingrained in the Trump orbit right now. And, you know, someone, frankly, he he is an attorney who's being paid uh, by a Trump-related PAC. I mean, if you are someone who is that far enmeshed in that world and you've been with Trump, you know, for that long, it can be sort of hard to imagine what your life would look like outside of that. And I think that that is part of the reason prosecutors have had such a difficult time in their efforts to try to get Walt Nata to cooperate and to flip.
1: All right, guys, stick with us. We've got a lot more to come going forward. Donald Trump going on the offense, trying to go on the offensive, but definitely fundraising after his arraignment. His 2024 rivals, they're also weighing in.
0: Also new reporting about President Biden's very quiet response to Trump's federal charges. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
2: Republicans all... You must finally get tough.
1: You've got to get tough. You've got to get tough. That was former President Trump's message to his party. He's running against many of them in a primary right now. As he railed against the federal indictment against him, Trump addressed his supporters at, Bedminster, at his Bedminster, New Jersey, Golf Club after pleading not guilty in Miami yesterday. CNN's Elena Treen is live near Bedminster this morning. And, and Elena, you follow this campaign closely, you follow the former president closely. What were your big takeaways after the speech and the fundraiser that followed?
9: Right. Well, there's a few very notable things I took away, Phil and Poppy. Uh, The first is that we saw him use the well-worn playbook that he's used time and time again, and also the same language he's been using for several days now, which is that these charges are political, that they amount to election interference, but also that he was entitled to take these documents with him uh, after leaving the White House, and also that others were not prosecuted for doing the same thing that he did, of course. Prosecutors in this case say that that's not true, that he took with him some of the most sensitive national security documents and also that his unwillingness to turn them over amounts to obstruction. So that's the first thing. The second thing I found really notable was that um, he his tone of this. So. Um, he was very angry during his speech. And and it was something that I know some of his advisors picked up on as well. Uh, Yes, he was surrounded by his most sympathetic supporters, his fiercest allies. But you could tell during his speech that there was some underlying anger there. And also, he did not linger after he gave remarks. He didn't stay in the crowd and talk to people like we saw him do following his arraignment at uh, the Versailles restaurant in Miami, which is kind of a landmark uh, in the state of Florida. No, he left the stage almost immediately and went back into his club. And then the third thing I found very interesting was the substance of his speech. I talked with some Trump allies prior to him taking the stage, and they told me that they were hoping it would be more forward looking, that uh, he would focus on him being the leader of the Republican Party, lay out some of his 2024 agenda items. But he did very little of that. He spent the majority of his speech railing against his opponents, railing against uh, President Biden and also his 2016 campaign rival, Hillary Clinton. And he also focused on special counsel Jack Smith. And that's something i know that his team has urged him against doing but he did anyway all
1: right elena stick with us we're going to be back with you over the course of the next couple hours i want to come back to the panel and, and maria i want to start with you because i love the idea of that great reporting from elena of people around him or his supporters saying like i wish this was forward-looking i wish this was about 2024 and his agenda and not about hillary clinton or you know whatever reliving 2016. Like, what world are they living in i'm sorry like this is the last seven years Always.
3: It's not going to take, guys. Like, every once in a while, Trump will actually listen to them, and he will give a forward-looking speech, and then they get really excited, now like, oh, my God, he's listening to this us. This is the day he's he taking became our advice. president. This is the day he became <laughs> president. Presidents. Yes, as we've so often said. And then he goes right back to it. I mean, this is... He, of course, is going to move into these campaign speeches and he's going to articulate some of what he would do if he had another term. But we have not seen a willingness to not rail against these investigations, to not try to relitigate how he believes the election was stolen from him, which is not true. I mean, it's just not going to happen.
0: What does happen now in terms of the trial, the schedule? I know we have to wait for two weeks for the Walnata um appearance. Right.
8: But once, then what? Once NADA gets arraigned, the judge is going to set a schedule for discovery. And I think that discovery is probably, for the most part, ready to go. The, the U.S. Attorney's Office, or pardon me, Jack Smith, he has a, an incentive to move this along as quickly as possible. But I would expect there'll be a lot of emotions and actions on behalf <laughs> of Trump, for example, to challenge a privilege that that was pierced, with his attorney, Evan Corcoran. That could be a big piece. This isn't Michael Cohen in New York was a bad witness and you really don't care, that's an overstatement. But Corcoran has much, much more clout and weight and and credibility. So there's gonna be a lot of things that are going to happen. There's gonna be subpoenas, I wouldn't be shocked, that are issued by the defense. Do
0: you think this goes all the way up to the Supreme Court? That's what uh, Tim Politori, who was Trump's lawyer until, what, a few weeks ago, is predicting.
8: I I think if it can, it will. So I, I think there's always a possibility this is, first of all, a unique case that's been unheard of before. Uh, when you have a former president who is now in, in federal court, there are issues that are legitimate issues that will be challenged. Again, going back what, to like the- But like Corcoran's- Yeah. Uh, notes and audio absolutely. of the meetings with Trump? A- absolutely. So I think there's a lot of weight here but, to that. But
0: why would the Supreme Court revisit that question? Because that came from a Supreme Court decision. They had already decided on that, that there is a crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege? Why would they revisit what they have already said as precedent?
8: Well, I think that, well, that, I think because there's going to be new challenges now with the new team in terms of where they are, not at the grand jury stage when it was decided that it was admissible, but now that you're at, at at the trial stage. And there's also going to be separate to what you're going to, but interlocutory appeals that could delay this as well. Other issues may come up where we can't proceed in this trial until a higher court renders a decision on what Whatever issue is brought up, whatever subpoena may be challenged, whatever legal motion is being made. So there's a lot of steps that can take place and not necessarily go to Supreme Court, but other appellate or higher level courts to make those decisions.
1: Shelby, I want to ask about um, we've we've all been closely watching the other primary uh, competitors that the former president is facing. Uh, Mike Pence, the former vice president, uh, I think was at the Wall Street Journal doing an editorial board meeting while this was all happening to some degree. And he said this. Take a listen.
4: I have had the opportunity to read the indictment uh, that was filed. I can't defend what's alleged. These are serious allegations and the handling of, of classified materials, as I learned in my years as vice president and my years on the Foreign Affairs Committee, is a very serious matter that bears upon the national security of the United States.
1: And we also said that he has a lot of questions about the Justice Department and uh, you know, the decision making in cases over the course of the last seven years. But what do you make of that response?
6: I'm actually not surprised by it because Pence is running on kind of being the upholding the Constitution candidate. Um, I know you saw a few weeks ago when he launched, he really leaned into that and he was hitting Trump pretty aggressively, more aggressively than I anticipated. But after that announcement speech, it doesn't surprise me that he's taking a little bit of a stricter viewpoint after seeing all of these charges um, and kind of withholding whether or not he is going to pardon Trump, unlike some of the other candidates that we've seen.
0: I was a bit surprised, though, to hear Nikki Haley say for the good of the country, if she were president and if Trump went to jail and were convicted, she, would, she may pardon him. This was after Vivek Ramaswamy, who's also running, um, called on the other candidates, the other Republican candidates to follow his sort of lead and saying he would pardon Trump. Let's listen to mm-hmm. Nikki Haley
10: when you look at a pardon, the issue is less about guilt and more about what's good for the country. And I think it would be terrible for the country to have a former president in prison for years because of a documents case. That's something you see in a third world country. I saw that at the United Nations. So I would be inclined in favor of a pardon.
3: You know, I, I think people have uh, issues with her referring to this being something that happens in a third world country because we are talking about very serious crimes that Donald Trump has been accused of. But I do think that there is a concern among politicians, even among lawyers, about kind of what precedent we are setting when we indict a former president and, you know, If he is convicted, could he face jail time? What does that mean? And what does this mean for future uh, presidents moving forward? Is this kind of going to be a new normal? I think the issue with Donald Trump is he's just done so much to break the norms and, in many cases, to potentially violate the law. And so the question is if you're not going to hold him accountable through the impeachment process, if you're not going to to do that, to remove him from office, which, you know, we saw them go through the impeachment process twice, then what is the remedy supposed Mm -hmm. to be? Because the answer can't be that if you are a president or a former president, you can run around committing whatever crimes you want.
1: I mean, I think what was striking about the answer is the first part of it, you think, all right, well, there's some precedent. If you go back to Gerald Ford, not an apples-to-apples comparative, yeah. but pardon Nixon may have cost himself re-election because he pardoned right. Nixon, did it for the good of the country. I think history has looked well upon that decision in that moment. And then you wander into the, like, banana republic, third-world country. And then it uh, kind of loses me. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to try and ask you to explain <laughs> it to me, Murray. But I do want to ask you, you spend a large portion of your time also paying very close attention to another investigation that's ongoing uh, down in Georgia. Yeah. And when uh, you were sending some of your reporting this morning, I was fascinated by the fact that Georgia law enforcement had folks up watching, and I think they did in New York as well. What's that tell you about things?
3: Yeah, we've actually known this for a while. They wanted to be sort of, Quiet about it, but they were in New York. They were scoping out what the security situation was there, how they secured the courthouse there, and they did the same thing uh, in Miami to see how they were grappling with Donald Trump's appearance, how they grappled with security concerns. Look, they're getting ready. I mean, the district attorney in Fulton County has signaled she's going to make her announcements on whether anyone will face charges. In essentially the first three weeks of August, and I know from my conversations with people in Atlanta that one of the big concerns is making sure that they do not have any security issues there. They're obviously worried about the former president's security, but the D.A. there, who's a black woman, has gotten a number of threats. Her staff has gotten a number of threats. So she's concerned, you know, broadly about the federal complex as well as Donald Trump and potentially other defendants who could be charged alongside him.
0: Um, That's really fascinating. that They were up there.
1: your correction, what? Rick. What? Yeah. Shelby's not from Iowa. She's actually from New York. She went to the University <laughs> of Iowa where she played tennis and defeated my Buckeyes on a regular basis. And I thought, we're Midwest, we're going to claim her. And I just wanted you her in yeah. our you're circle. Welcome and in the she's fold. in it whether she likes you're it or wife. not. I appreciate <laughs> it. I
6: like being you're, you're, a New Yorker, you're, you're, but I will take the honorary. Idle, go. I feel
11: like we
1: found a good balance.
6: <laughs> we <laughs> did indeed. Well, plans
0: are being finalized. We should know to reopen that collapsed portion of I-95 in Philadelphia. Officials have identified a truck driver killed in that crash.
1: And a federal judge will now allow Eugene Carroll to seek more damages in her defamation lawsuit against Donald Trump. More on that coming up.
0: Welcome back. Well, health officials in Philadelphia have identified a body pulled from the wreckage of that collapsed section of I-95. They say the truck driver, Nathan Moody, died after his truck crashed into a highway wall and went up in flames on Sunday. Part of the highway then collapsed. The father of three died of blunt trauma to the head, inhalation, and thermal injuries. That's according to a health department spokesperson. Obviously, our thoughts with this whole family, especially his kids. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg visited the site yesterday as you see he vowed the federal government would help fix the collapsed section of the highway which state officials say could take months.
1: And you can add a new legal woe for former President Trump. A federal judge will allow e. Jean Carroll to amend her original lawsuit to include comments he made at a CNN town hall last month. A civil jury found Trump sexually abused Carroll and defamed her in the way he denied that attack. And just a day later, Trump said this on CNN. They said he didn't rape her
2: and they did not, I didn't did do anything did. else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. I have no idea who the hell she's
1: a what job. Carol's lawyer says she will try to seek additional punitive damages for those remarks.
0: Also, Bud Light has lost its place as America's most popular beer, at least for now. This follows backlash over the brand's outreach to the transgender community. But light sales started tumbling in April after trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney posted an Instagram picture of a personalized can sent to her by Anheuser-Busch. Sales are down 25 percent since last June. Modelo Especial, now the top U.S. beer. Up next, reaction to Donald Trump's arraignment from America's global allies and rivals.
1: And later, Trump has uh, has been ordered not to talk to one of his closest aides about the case, how the judge could actually enforce that. Stick with us. Welcome back to our continuing special coverage. You're looking at headlines from around the world after former President Trump pleaded not guilty to federal charges of mishandling classified documents. Now, remember, the documents themselves have potential very real international implications. We want to talk about that. Joining us from London is CNN's Max Foster and Bianca Nobilo. Max, Bianca, Look, we're very kind of insularly focused on the United States no. and the politics. Americans know, are focused dare on we? America. Say, Never. It's the exceptionalism <laughs> happening in real time or the perception of it to some degree. But this has wide repercussions around the world. What are you guys seeing in terms of the international community, how they're reacting uh, to the indictment and, and what their view is of this moment for
12: America? Well, I think Trump has been a global story in the same way as it's been a story for you. What's interesting this time round is that it's not playing that high. So uh, t- Daily Telegraph, for example, big front page, we mm. did have a massive UK story here yesterday, and it's just a mention here mm. at the bottom. And that's a typical sort of thing we've seen around the world if you look at all the newspapers. But if you go inside, there is commentary. So in the Times, his golden hair glowed, glowed like a giant light bulb.
13: The best They're
12: headline saying. of the day. <laughs> so a lot of them talking about... ANSA said this as well, didn't they? The Italian news agency talking about the Trump show, how he used the court event to create a show later on in the day.
0: Yeah, he certainly did. Some of the reaction that I find interesting was not only the New York Times reporting that some political commentators in Russia were very open about their support for Trump, but also the tweet by the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, tweeting, Your fight is... Good. your fight is a good fight never give up
13: yeah this is this is key poppy and what you've hit on is exactly why as max was saying President Trump was such a global story, and that's because he was part of this broader trend that we've seen with rising authoritarian tendencies and these populist mavericks cropping up all around the world. Obviously, Hungary's Viktor Orban is one of those populists. And also, when we look at Russia, obviously, with Vladimir Putin at the helm, it's interesting that the Russian state news agency has covered this, but they covered it exclusively from the angle of Trump maintains that he had the right to have these documents with no counterbalance in their report as to Mm -hmm. all the evidence against him. So underscoring as a leader that he has the Mm -hmm. right to do what he wanted to do. And in the United Kingdom, in the, The Guardian, which I have here, there's been quite a lot of commentary linking... Boris Johnson's political travails of the last week, the fact that he had to resign after calling an investigation into him a witch hunt, a kangaroo court, a political hit job, basically saying, like, Britain doesn't want these Trumpian tendencies. So I think that is what's really resonating across the continent.
1: Yeah, the co-opting of the language with allies and foes has been Mm -hmm. fascinating over the course of the last few years. I I want to ask both of you guys this because... The times we interact in person or when I'm on presidential trips and uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to work with you face to face as opposed to through the TV screen. You talk to aides and officials that are close with leaders of key U.S. allies. So many of the times we've been on these trips, the message is palpable concern about whether or not there will be a return to what they saw in the four years of the Trump presidency. How do people look at this moment and his lead in the Republican primary right now uh, for what
12: it might say about the future? And they're very nervous um, It's that chaos that they had, and they didn't know quite understand it. If you take u k for one ex- as one example, they're desperate for a, a trade deal with the United States, so you're not going to have any any, um, any public figure, really, anyone that might be in government criticising Donald Trump because he might be the person they try to get that trade deal with. And all of the allies are just aware that he might be president next year. So in public, they're playing it very straight and they're not taking sides at all. Behind the scenes, they do dread the chaos.
13: And I think it's also linked, in terms of what officials think and what the concerns are, to those two prevailing questions. First of all, could the outcome of this particular investigation and case and all of these counts against the former president lead to him not being eligible for office? That's the key question that many people have and and many newspapers in Eastern Europe asking that today. The other being, what was the motive here? A lot of our newspapers in the UK also asking that question, because in terms of an alliance with America for Mm defence, intelligence and security, that's a key question and an unanswered one. And
0: remember, we know from the indictment, it's alleged that some of these documents included five eyes, which would be sensitive information mm-hmm. with those key allies as well. So it's not just about U.S. intelligence. It's about what is shared with our closest allies.
1: Yeah, oh, it's, it's fascinating. Guys, thanks so much for that perspective. I think it's really important, probably underappreciated. And Sarah, I, that last point Bianca made, I think, is so valuable because we get so stuck in the politics, the polls, the messaging, the posture of the former president um, inside these documents. Major, major problematic information were it to become public, not just for us, but to Poppy's point, our closest intelligence allies, our mm-hmm. foes to some degree?
3: Yeah, I mean, you can understand why international leaders might wanna be quiet publicly because we don't know how this election cycle is gonna play out and privately would just be horrified. I mean, to think that your own country's secrets would be splayed across the floor uh, at Mar-a-Lago because Donald Trump decided he just wanted to take boxes of documents with him when he left, I think really makes you wonder how you can completely trust the US as an ally in sharing these kinds of secrets. Again, we don't have the full details of what's in all of these documents, but it doesn't look great, Phil. It-
0: but the jury, the jury, Jeremy, is gonna have to see the documents. Um, and that's why Jack Smith was very particular in choosing these 31, went back to those eight intelligence agencies, what needs to be redacted so that these are sort of damning enough to make my case to the jury, but also you're sharing sensitive national secrets. And that could also be a point of criticism from Trump allies. If this is so dangerous to have out of the White House or, you know, these secure areas, why can a jury see it?
8: Well, again, you just made a great point. They're being redacted. You're not getting them in their complete form. And it's necessary because the elements or one of the elements is that these are compromising the defense of the United States. So you can't prove your crime beyond a reasonable doubt if you can't establish That, in fact, it happened. But you do that cautiously. You do that with respect to the documents. You do that with respect to the the countries that are in jeopardy, the nuclear information that's put out there. But you have to put that out there. There's no way to avoid that.
0: Thank you very, very much. Prosecutors and former president's lawyers already looking forward to what are the next steps. More on that ahead.
1: And how a new read on inflation could impact the Fed's interest rate decision just a few hours from now
0: more CNN This Morning to come after the break. You have two wonks at the table. Three, because Chrissy Romans Murray is here. Murray used
13: to cover economics wonk. for the journal. Drive, Sarah Murray. You're not so we love
0: that. this stuff. This
13: is like a
1: control room's nightmare. It's I know. Like, oh, a bunch of <laughs> beacon nerds. This is great.
0: Ratings gold. Just hours from now, the Labor Department is set to release another key inflation indicator. After a separate report yesterday showed prices cooled last month, that's good. Later today, the critical decision comes from the Fed over whether they're going to pause. It looks like they might. Our chief business correspondent, Chief Wonk, Kristen Romans, here with us. <laughs>
7: it doesn't have to be wonky because every, it household, matters to everyone. every household budget is, is, is affected by all of this, right? So let's talk about the Fed meeting first. You're right. We talked about this yesterday. Overwhelming assumption on Wall Street that they will not move. There will be a Powell pause that for the first time in a long time, I like you're going to have a Fed meeting that you won't have higher uh, interest rates. And those higher interest rates have meant higher borrowing costs for everyone. So that's important. A Powell pause. I think it's 95 percent is the chance the CME group puts uh, at a at a at a pause here. No rate hike. Only about five percent think it will. And if you look at that mountain of tightening that we've had, all of that has meant higher mortgage rates, higher car loans, higher credit card loans. And that's something that affects everybody. In the meantime, all of that hiking that, you know, one after another 10 rate hikes, that has helped cool inflation. We saw yesterday that consumer price index has been cut in half since the summer, and that's really important. And we'll get the producer price index uh, in just a couple of hours, and that's expected to be even more dramatic in, in how it's cooling. It could be below 2%. So mm-hmm. there has been progress on the inflation front, but still, uh, I think, still some work to do. So Powell pause.
0: That's what we're calling pal-paws.
7: for today.
1: By the way, wonk is not a majority term. I know. It's not a majority. We're, we're taking it back.
0: It does apply to everyone. I was thinking about it as I was getting eggs out last night to make banana bread. I was like, they're so much more affordable now. They are. Thank you. Thanks, buddy.
1: (laughs) Appreciate it. Well, Donald Trump not backing down. Just hours after becoming the first former president to face charges in federal court.
0: Trump sat in the same room as the special prosecutor who indicted him. Jack Smith, our special coverage, continues after this. That will happen often. It is the top of the hour. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us on the day after the day, because yesterday was such a critical
1: day in the history of this country. And why I'm happy right now, um, I know, God forbid, you'd be happy at 6 in the morning. We actually have really smart people to explain what's yes. coming next, because it's That's very, exactly very right. important. It was yesterday, very important, unprecedented in history. What comes next, equally as important. That's right. And just besides that. Yeah, and
0: the trial ahead, and also fact-checking what the former president said last night about all of it. It is Wednesday, June the 14th. And President Trump was defiant last night after pleading not guilty to all 37 federal charges related to his handling of classified documents. In a speech last night at his golf club in New Jersey, the former president made several misleading claims. He even said, quote, that he did everything right.
1: Now, during his historic arraignment in Miami on Tuesday, he did not address the court and instead sat hunched over, arms crossed, and according to reporters in the room, a scowl on his face.
0: Also important to note, Special Counsel Jack Smith obviously was in that courtroom. The New York Times reports it was the first time the two men had really been in the same room and encountered one another. They did not talk talk to each other.
1: Now, the judge ordered Trump not to communicate with his longtime aide turn co defendant Walt Nada about the case. Nada is set to appear in court again in two weeks.
0: We are also now hearing from Trump's Republican rivals in the race for the White House. Former President Mike Pence told the Wall Street Journal he cannot defend his old boss's alleged conduct. Nikki Haley, on the other hand, said she'd be inclined to pardon the former president if he is convicted. CNN This Morning starts right now. Donald Trump wasted no time turning his historic arrest and arraignment on federal charges into a campaign fundraiser watch. Just hours after he pled not guilty to 37 felony counts in Miami, Trump gave a speech to a crowd of political donors and supporters at his golf club in New Jersey. His speech was full of misleading and false claims, including this one.
2: Whatever documents a president decides to take with him He has the right to do so. It's an absolute right. This is the law.
1: Federal prosecutors say Trump illegally kept classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and hid them from the FBI repeatedly, including some of the nation's most sensitive military secrets and details about America's nuclear program. He allegedly showed them to people without security clearance. He haphazardly stored them in places like a bathroom next to a toilet. Good chandeliers, though. We once again have team coverage this morning across the spectrum of things. Elena Treen is live in Bedminster, New Jersey. Laura Coates, in all of her wonderful ways, will break down what comes next in this unprecedented legal case. Former FBI special agent and CNN security correspondent Josh Campbell is here. CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray and Semaphore politics reporter Shelby Talcott are standing by for analysis. But, Sarah, I want to start with you. Um, We saw what happened in court. We saw what happened after court. What means? What does this mean going forward?
3: <laughs> well, you know, look, I think what we saw from Donald Trump after leaving the courthouse was this defiant tone, this insistence that these were his documents, that he had every right to keep them. But guys, he did not look happy to be showing up at that courthouse for his second indictment since leaving the White House. Former President Donald Trump maintaining his innocence in the face of 37 federal charges related to his alleged mishandling of classified documents.
2: I hadn't had a chance to go through all the boxes. It's a long, tedious job. It takes a long time, which I was prepared to do, but I have a very busy life.
3: Trump speaking before a crowd of supporters at his Bedminster golf club, capping a historic day that included the first federal arraignment of a former president.
4: We can't just deny what, what President Trump did was wrong. I mean, it's clear as day wrong.
5: And I don't care whether you are a Trump supporter or a Trump opposer. You
3: have to take this seriously. Trump surrendered at a federal courthouse in Miami Tuesday afternoon. His attorney telling the court on Trump's behalf, we most certainly enter a plea of not guilty. In the courtroom, Trump sat with his arms crossed at a table flanked by his two lawyers. Trump did not address the court. Also seated at that table, his aide and co-defendant, Walt Nauta. Nauta could not enter a plea because he did not have a Florida lawyer present. Of the 37 counts Trump faces, some are for obstruction, but most are for the willful retention of national defense information.
2: Threatening me with 400 years in prison, for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done, is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law.
3: The judge presiding over the arraignment did not impose any travel restrictions, but told Trump he could not speak to any of the potential witnesses in the case. Trump's attorney objected, insisting many of the witnesses in this case are people employed by the former president. The judge clarified that Trump could not speak about the facts of the case with any of the witnesses, including NADA, and asked prosecutors to provide a list of the witnesses in the case. Also present in the courtroom, Special Counsel Jack Smith, though he did not speak during the hearing. Trump was greeted by a crowd as his motorcade left the courthouse. He made an unannounced stop at the famous Cuban restaurant Versailles in Miami's Little Havana, where he was met by dozens of supporters. He entered the restaurant with Nada by his side and spoke to religious leaders. After the indictment, Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, spoke about the charges after previously urging the Justice Department not to indict the former president.
4: And I have had the opportunity to read the indictment uh, that was filed. I can't defend what's alleged. These are serious allegations. And the handling of, of classified materials, as I learned in my years as vice president and my years on the Foreign Affairs Committee, is a very serious matter that bears upon the national security of the United States.
3: Now, look, it's not like we're seeing this tidal wave of Republicans suddenly turn on Trump. You know, we've heard a number of prominent voices still defending the former president. But in the last 24 hours, we have heard from more people who are backing off of their unequivocal support and raising concerns when it comes to this indictment.
0: Thank you for that. Stay with us. We'll check back in in just a minute.
1: You're not allowed to leave, but I do (laughs) want to turn to our expert because I think everybody has a lot of questions about what actually comes next. You saw uh, Walt Nada and the actual process here. So I'm going to turn to the person who actually knows and tells me these things, whether she likes me emailing or texting her or not. (laughs) What does happen next now that we've had the initial arraignment?
5: So I'm the voice in your head. You've acknowledged it finally. The good one. The Morgan Freeman voice of
1: God. Okay, wonderful.
5: I appreciate that. Well, what is next, everyone? It's really important to think about. The number one thing that's next is. Walt Nada's arraignment. It might feel a little bit like deja vu because of course we were supposed to have that portion happen yesterday, but he does not have local counsel. He actually has a reputation, but not actually local counsel. So he'll come back facing those six charges outlined in the indictment. That is the co-defendant on the conspiracy and obstruction-related offenses. His attorney fees are being paid for by the Save America PAC, but he will be back in court on June 27th. Trump should not appear with him at that point in time. Also, what's next, of course, is discovery. The DOJ normally would have about 14 days to turn over everything, to say, here's what you have, in preparation for a fair trial, obviously, to have both exculpatory information available and everything else. But this is going to be massaged a great deal because, of course, you've got delays possible due to classified documents. You've got to get security clearances to see the documents at issue here. It doesn't say anything about what's going to happen eventually for a jury to actually look at those documents. Summation probably happened already. You're talking about the grand jury. But now it's time to figure out what you have and when you can give it, this will be a very big determinant in terms of when the next trial date will be.
0: When Trump's attorneys and prosecutors start to engage in this, what, what will they engage in next? What will they argue, wrestle over in terms of- The biggest
5: of- things are going to be the pretrial motions, Poppy. Right. The idea of figuring out what is going to happen in the sense of, are we going to dismiss or try to exclude evidence? You can bet your bottom dollar. That Evan Corcoran's notes and audio tapes that form the part of the indictment that suggests, look, here's what was said to me. I audio recorded it contemporaneously. Discussions about wanting to shield documents, discussions about sort of the plucking motion that took place in that point in time. That'll be the part of the pretrial motions. It's not unheard of to have these motions. It's quite standard to talk about what's going to come in, what's going to be excluded. We're talking about a jury, of course. The court of public opinion will probably hear a lot more than actually a court of law, mm-hmm. jury, and paneled people will do. But the number one question is going to be the schedule. It's a big question mark. We know that they have a lot of time against them if you're the prosecution, but we don't actually have a set schedule in terms of a trial date, most importantly, of course. The speedy trial says within 70 days. That's puts you about August, around the time that this is likely not going to happen. But the reason there's a question is because... These are co-defendants. And unless one's arraigned, unless both are arraigned, you don't have a chance to set a full schedule. Mm.
1: Um, Laura, can you come hang out?
5: Can I bring my matcha <laughs> latte or yes, no? Yes, absolutely. All if right, you brought, I'll if in. You brought well, I'm lattes str- for the entire oh, no.
1: table. <laughs> um, I, I want to start, Shelby, our panel's back with us right now. Um, Josh Campbell is joining us, Sarah Murray, Shelby Talcott. Thanks, guys, for being here. I, I want to start with uh, Laura was just laying out because she also did a great run-through yesterday of how complicated the potential legal schedule when you put it over the top of the political schedule. What's your sense of how this actually plays out? Because I know other campaigns are looking at that fact right now.
6: Yeah, and not only are they looking at it now, but they've been looking at it for months. We've known these investigations are ongoing. And from essentially the start of this 2024 season, campaigns have been telling me privately, well, just wait until all of these investigations ramp up. How is he possibly going to be able to defend himself while also running a a campaign schedule. It's a full-time job. Um, And his team is not concerned about it. And I think we saw last night their plan is to essentially merge the two uh, and use these investigations and these indictments as kind of fodder for his run and turn these events into campaign events. You know, it's funny, though,
5: that this is the, the, the prosecution, they have 21 days. They anticipate 21 days of being able to try this case. Yeah. It's not like the Eugene Carroll lawsuit where he can say, you know what, I'm not showing up. He has to go. He has to go. Yeah. He has to be there for about 21 days off a campaign trail. And so if you're the other RNC hopefuls, you're maybe going, oh, good, there's someone off the campaign trail. If you're him, you're thinking, do I delay or do I put myself in the primary context? And if you're DOJ, you're thinking... Well, am I going to be perceived as interfering with an election cycle if I have 21 days of the presumptive frontrunner off the trail?
0: And that's the argument that, that President Trump made last night saying this is election interference.
3: Yeah, and I suspect that we are going to hear from his attorneys in court talking about the scheduling issue, talking about how one, he has a right to prepare for trial, but two, he's running for president of the United States and he needs to have time to do that. I mean, we'll see how a judge takes that. Judge Eileen Cannon might take it uh, more receptively than another judge would, but it's also interesting to hear him make this election interference argument when he is under investigation for interfering in an election in the peaceful transfer of power when it comes to the end of the 2020 right. election, both by a federal prosecutor, Jack Smith, and also Georgia. by uh, yeah, the district attorney in Georgia. And it's yes. also
14: interesting to think that, you know, whether you're a campaign staff or the Secret Service, you're now plotting out an entire election season based on when you might have to spirit your protectee to his next court date, right. which is something we, you know, we haven't seen.
1: It's also fascinating. A lot of Democrats think because of law enforcement involvement in a campaign was why Donald Trump won in 2016 to begin with. So, I'm um, glad everything's so circular and makes a ton of sense, um, but the, the schedule and what Sarah was talking about, but the other investigations also ties into yesterday because there were actual law enforcement officials from Fulton County that were physically there, which is where the next potential indictment could come. Why were they there? What does that tell you?
14: This is interesting. You know, when you think about all the major security events in the United States that law enforcement has to prepare for, you know, work security at Super Bowls and presidential mm-hmm. inaugurations and the like, there's a playbook on the shelf. You know, you pull off the playbook. OK, here's how we're going to run security at this event. There is no playbook for how to protect a, a former president who is now going to all these, you know, uh, uh, court hearings. And now, as you mentioned, potentially could be charged in Fulton County. So we learned that law enforcement in Fulton County actually sent officers to New York when the former president was there facing an indictment. They sent uh, uh, officials yesterday to Miami, their goal was to try to see how do the, these crowds work and how does law enforcement prepare? So they're basically building their own playbook. It's interesting because these, you know, anyone who's worked at protests know it's it's almost like an ecosystem, right? You try to identify who's the leader of this group. And, you know, it's not uncommon for law enforcement to try to make contact with that person just to have a line of communication. Miami police yesterday did a really good job at quickly identifying, mm. you know, potential t- uh, moments of tension, trying to diffuse them. There are also lessons learned to be Sure. I mean, there was one incident of the guy in the the Halloween costume, you know, the jail suit who stopped the motorcade by jumping in front of all that law enforcement. Don't do that, by the way. Don't do that. Yeah. Really
1: bad idea. Yeah. He didn't didn't have
14: a good night, um, uh, likely uh, spending his night in jail. Um, But that's all information that Fulton County is trying to identify. How do we run this event to ensure that it's secure if indeed the former president? again, faces charges where they are.
0: Can we talk about what Trump said last night in this? Because I can just imagine, if he has to be in court every day, 21 days, yeah, well, court ends at, what, 5 o'clock? Mm-hmm. So you go right out of there and you do what you did last night, right? And, and what he said that I thought was striking is this.
2: If the communists get away with this, it won't stop with me. They will not hesitate to ramp up there. Persecution of Christians, pro-life activists, parents attending school board meetings, and even future Republican candidates.
0: A whole lot of people, Christians, pro-life activists, any parent attending school board meetings. Similar playbook. It's not about me. This is about you.
6: Yeah, this is again, this is Trump's playbook. We heard it with the past indictment. We've heard it for virtually every investigation that Trump has ever been at the center of. And the reason is because, A, it allows him to kind of bemoan about these investigations and claim that they are unfair and politically motivated. But B, he needs a reason to get people to care. And he already has huge control over the Republican base. And so by framing it as, yes, this is happening to me, but here's how it's going to affect you, is, you know, his version of an effective way to kind of twist the story into a campaign message.
5: It's bizarre, though. I mean, the idea of who among us, right? Who among us hasn't had this? This is not a traffic stop or somebody who maybe didn't know that there was a speed trap. I'm not looking at you for a Feels reason. Phil. You know <laughs> that <but> Phil never <laughs> speeds. I, I, I know. There's you? We, other we people at the table. Okay, uh-huh. I'll, I'll look this way instead <laughs> um, towards the former FBI agent. Because, <laughs> fine. George um, Snow. Yeah. Yeah. But who among us, the idea, this is somebody who is in a unique position. Most of us have never had a security clearance. Most of us would never have access to classified documents, to be able to declassify or otherwise, or be uh, have the Presidential Records Act be applicable to us. So it's always an odd thing to try to have this be the relatability factor. Yeah.
1: I mean, to some degree... He's right. If you are any of those groups he mentioned, and you are taking classified documents out of a skiff and putting them in your bathroom, right. and then refusing to give them back to the FBI, and then not uh, addressing this, then subpoena. this too could you, be you. This too could be you. It is a fair, fair assessment. Why are you smiling? I'm
0: smiling because the controller wants us to get to oh, break. Right, yeah. right, coming sorry. up, <laughs> it says you're supposed to read, but I'm coming up taking a closer look at Trump's efforts to rake in campaign donations in the wake of his historic arrest on these federal
1: charges. And Mike Pence taking one of the strongest shots yet at his ex-boss over the serious allegations. Could this be the tipping point for other GOP presidential hopefuls who have been up to this point hesitant to criticize Trump? Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm going to
0: go to the bathroom.
4: I have had the opportunity to read the indictment uh, that was filed. I can't defend what's alleged. These are serious allegations. And the handling of of classified materials, as I learned in my years as vice president and my years on the Foreign Affairs Committee, is a very serious matter that bears upon the national security of the United States.
0: That is former Vice President Mike Pence saying that he cannot defend these allegations in the indictment against Donald Trump over his handling of classified documents. But at the same time, in the same breath, really saying he does believe that this case is politically motivated back with us, our experts. So looking, Sarah, at... I I think I was in the minority. I was telling you that I was sort of surprised that Mike Pence even went that far in saying I can't defend it. But then he sort of hedges it by also saying I think it's political.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it was surprising to me that Mike Pence didn't keep his powder a little bit dry ahead of time. Because, I mean, what did you think was going to be in this indictment? Like, we knew... Already, that they took a whole lot of stuff when they searched Mar-a-Lago. We knew that they took over a hundred documents with classified markings. There's been great reporting by CNN and by others about Donald Trump talking to people, uh, you know, potentially even showing people these classified documents. So I don't know what Mike Pence thought he was going to find in this indictment, but it seems pretty clear that now he's read it and he's like, "Oh, this is bad." Yeah.
1: Shelby, I thought you made a good point about, you know, this is kind of his, how he's tried to find a lane, right? The Constitution, respect for the Constitution, the the candidate that holds that up in some degree. I guess this sort of tracks like that. Given
0: what he did on January 6th. Yes, it
1: it very much lines up with that idea of things. Um, We also heard Nikki Haley weigh in, um, saying that she has, over the course of the day, made clear that she thought that was problematic. Uh, However, she would be willing to pardon the president. I think what we're all trying to get a sense of right now is... Where is the primary moving in terms of how Republicans respond?
6: I think they'd love not to respond, quite frankly. But given that they will have to respond, uh, Mike Pence is, I would say, going to be the baseline of kind of separating himself from saying that Trump is innocent and this is, you know, a witch hunt, but also saying that it's politicized. And that's kind of the safe Bet for a lot of these candidates because so much of the Republican base believes that the DOJ and the FBI are politicized, so they get points there, and then they kind of get points in terms of keeping their credibility by admitting that these are really serious charges and you know maybe we shouldn't jump to you know immediately pardoning them like Vivek has promised. Right. To.
5: Remember, too, he lives in a glass house. I mean, he had classified documents. I know there can be discussions about to what extent the documents were there, his knowledge of it into the new home, whether they were sealed. We've heard people talk about these different issues. And so he's not going to necessarily throw the most convincing and persuasive stone in that instance. So he's cautious of that as well. And remember, that already concluded as him not being charged. But Biden still lives in a bit of a glass house, albeit a White House at this point in time. And so there's a lot of conversations around what you can say and what you can do and expose yourself to these things. But remember, this is the head of the executive branch the idea of the Presidential Records Act, which, by the way, we played at the top of the hour, there is no grace period for turning over documents. When the clock strikes 12 p.m. for the inauguration, that's it. You are supposed to, in your lame duck period, do all that you could to get the documents returned. That's just patently false. The, NAR- the NARA has come out repeatedly to say, hey, this has been a frequent question. No, you do not have this grace period. You must turn it over. It's not keys. It's defense-related it's information. So, so, so. You know, it's
14: so interesting because your point about the, the strategy is something, you know, yeah. talking to law enforcement people <laughs> in the FBI Justice Department, it's not flipping a switch uh, when it relates to the attacks on them. It's not like if Donald Trump loses, he goes away. All of a sudden, everyone goes back to, okay, we respect law enforcement, you know, yeah. these institutions. And the theme seems to be it's, you know, if you're going to pick off Trump votes, it's, okay... He did something bad. Maybe there's a, a, a spectrum there, you know, how, how forceful they're going to be. But they're also then going to say, but just, the Justice Department was politicized, but the FBI needs to be reformed. And so they try to kind of have it both ways. And so it's interesting for people in law enforcement. They don't think that these attacks are going to end anytime soon because this is a political strategy. Mm-hmm.
0: President, Biden, we have some great reporting by Jeremy Diamond and, and, and the team here at CNN about the Biden White House strategy of silence on all of this. Let's play some of what Biden said yesterday that made clear that's the way they're going now.
15: Would you comment on the arrest of the former president, sir?
1: I think
0: that's about all you're going to get. You would know you are the chief White House correspondent. <laughs> I have a are they going to be able yes. to stick?
1: Yes. To this? Well, I, Sarah and I were talking about this. The interesting thing is the first lady actually weighed in mm-hmm. um, last night and, and uh, not in like a specific way about the legal side of things, you will not hear the president talk about this at all. And I appreciate, Jeremy, at an East Room event uh, where you're pretty far removed from the president yeah. shouting out and trying to get that. Because it's important to know, yes, we know he's not going to talk about, we've heard he's not going to talk about, that's their strategy. Sometimes the president doesn't necessarily want right. to follow that's what right. his team thinks. And I think this underscores the seriousness with which he views this mm-hmm. issue. And also, I think the the ability to grasp, they understand that any connection, any element that could be pointed to as I was involved in this or I appointed my attorney general to do this is massively problematic to the public perception. Sure. Democrats think this is, just like Republicans should be attacking on the substance of this politically. Mm -hmm. The president and his team say absolutely not.
0: We'll see if the people around him and, you know, um, surrogates do the same thing, though, as the election gets further along. Okay, first here on CNN, our crew forced to duck for cover. On the front lines of Ukraine's counteroffensive as the fight against Russia intensifies. We'll take you live to Zaporizhia next.
1: Welcome back. Ukraine's long awaited counteroffensive against Russian forces is now in its opening stages, and CNN is the first American network to get access to Ukraine's front line. Our senior international correspondent, Fred Flykin, is live in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. And Fred, Look, I try to follow this stuff closely. I think we're also, from our side of things, watching the information war play out in terms of what's happening on the ground. You're actually there. What are you seeing at this point?
16: Hi there, Phil. First of all, you're absolutely right. There is a big information war that is indeed playing out. But when you're on the front lines, what we did see was that the Ukrainians certainly are trying to push forward. They say they have enough gear to try and do that. But it is some very tough going for them because the Russians are fighting back in a very fierce way. They're not only blanketing the Ukrainians with artillery, but they're attacking them with jets as well. Here's what we witnessed. Ukrainian forces firing at Russian troops hold up in Blagodatnya in South Ukraine. This video, the brigade says, shows the Russians making a final stand here. Much of the area near the front lines, deeply scarred by combat. This is the area of Ukraine where the heaviest fighting is currently taking place. And you can see what it's done to a lot of the buildings and the cities and villages around this area. And that fighting is set to get even worse. We're with the 68th Jaeger Brigade, which has been making important gains here. The soldiers, confident and grateful for U.S. supply gear. A lot of the times, it saved my life, he says. It saves our lives every day from shrapnel, shelling and bullets. But some of the vehicles have already been lost, and the Russians continue to fire back. Constant artillery shelling and even airstrikes too close for comfort, as our crew had to duck for cover. brigade commander says his soldiers are just getting started our counter-attack will definitely be successful he says we believe in victory we are moving forward towards our goal we are advancing on this part of the front line the ukrainians believe they have the gear the manpower and the determination to advance far into russian-held territory So as you can see, some pretty tough battles. And that was just one small area of a very long front line. I think one of the things that Phil said is absolutely correct. This is the opening stages still of uh, the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive. We do see them making those gains. Those gains are certainly significant, but there still is a long way to go,
1: guys. Yeah, A long way to go. Uh, Stunning visuals there. Fred, stay safe. Great reporting as always. Former President Trump using his arraignment to bolster his presidential campaign. Details on the fundraiser he held immediately after leaving court. Coming up next.
0: Also, the Biden administration, as we were talking about, remaining silent so far, at least, on Trump's indictment inside their strategy on this ahead.
2: Seriously, think about it.
0: Former President Trump went from court yesterday to a popular Cuban restaurant in Miami. Back to New Jersey, where he held a private fundraiser. We are waiting to find out how much money the Trump campaign brought in from that. On a train is near Trump's golf club in Bedminster, Jersey, where he uh, made those remarks last night. Clearly, a campaign sort of stump speech. You're learning the mood of Trump's team behind the scenes. Not exactly
9: as happy, at least as what was portrayed last night. Is that right? That is right, Poppy. I think the Trump that you saw last night and also the Trump you saw after his arraignment when he went to that restaurant, the Versailles restaurant in Miami, is the kind of the Donald Trump that he wants you to see, the defiant Donald Trump. But behind the scenes, the mood is quite different. I've spoken with a number of Donald Trump's allies and advisors over the past several days now, and they tell me that there is some real concern about the legal implications of this. Um, Our colleague, Evan Perez, was also in the courtroom yesterday, and he noted that Donald Trump appeared to glum. He let his attorneys do all the talking for him, and he had his arms crossed over him for long periods of time. Uh, And also, behind the scenes, I'm told that Donald Trump is very angry about this, and he's admitted as much that he is doesn't want to be indicted. He does not want this stain on his record. It reminds me of when I've covered Donald Trump when he was impeached or he went through his impeachment trials uh, while president. He didn't want to be impeached either. He doesn't want this to be his legacy. And so uh, even though you're seeing Donald Trump use the bravado in his speech, he's surrounding himself with the most sympathetic supporters and his fiercest allies uh, during that speech last night. That's what he's using to try to give and portray to the public that he is defiant and he's ready to fight back against these charges. But I do know that privately, it's not exactly what he's putting out there. It's so interesting
0: because we don't have cameras in the courtroom for this, and we won't probably for the trial. And so, you know, all we see is what he presents outside of it. Alana Shreen, thank you very much.
1: Well, the former president and his allies have been ramping up their attacks against the Justice Department and FBI recently. And last night, no different.
2: The other picture that was so vile, you remember that one? It was angry and corrupt, was the photo staged by the FBI. And those that raided Mar a Lago, they were putting documents all over the floor. Remember that famous picture? All over, said confidential, said presidential, said all sorts of things. And it was supposed to be there like, It was that way when they raided. It wasn't that way. They put them there, took the picture, and released it illegally to the press.
1: Experiential and sequential. See if we can do that. Um, You made a really interesting point during the break, which hopefully you don't mind me talking about now that we're live on television. But that we were talking about what the current president is doing, not talking about these things, not weighing in, making clear to his team they are not to weigh in either. Uh, Contrast that with what we've seen from the former president repeatedly, but especially last night. And that what President Biden is doing is actually what used to be known as the norms. Is that a fair assessment?
14: No, it is. And, you know, under the Trump era, I mean, that was one of the norms that was shattered, this independence between the White House and the Justice Department. I mean, it started with his campaign where he was talking about, you know, the FBI should lock up his political opponent, uh, which was obviously, you know, a talking point. But even throughout his administration, he was either trying to bring DOJ close or, you know, slamming them. Uh, But you go back and look in history. I mean, the norm has been that the White House keeps distance for two very important reasons. First, you don't want it to look like you as a president are meddling in an investigation, uh, you know, trying to go after your allies. But two, if you find yourself under investigation or your administration, for example, you know, history lesson, every president since Nixon, other than Barack Obama, had someone senior in their administration under investigation by the FBI. If that person is cleared, you don't want the the thinking to be, well, you were meddling in that. And so that's why that that distance has been there. So for Biden to say, no, I'm not going to comment on what the DOJ is doing is not new. That's actually how it used to be done.
5: Look at that talking point that he tried to raise. The word meddling sticks in my mind. The perception that the photographs that were seen potentially in the indictment suggest, and him referencing in that way, probably trying to appeal to people to say, wait, I've seen photographs of documents all over the floor before. And wait, this is the FBI that's doing this in some respect. And so you're conflating the two things to suggest that what you're seeing in this very picture the audience is looking right now somehow might be in line with it. These photographs that are part of the indictment include photographs taken by his own team, Mm -hmm. not by members of the FBI. Can
1: you explain, though, you're dead on and what he's trying to do is conflate, it seems like. But what he's referring to is from the search warrant uh, in response to a suit that he filed. There was a picture included where the FBI had laid out what they had recovered, which is different from what was in. The indictment that he was arraigned on yesterday, which were pictures from cell phones of, you are covering this every day as well. Am I on the right track here?
3: Yeah, I mean, what we saw in earlier court documents after Mar-a-Lago was searched is the FBI, you know, lays out some of the documents they found. They're taking photos to document the results of their search. And Donald Trump was very upset by that. He said they make it look like, you know, I'm just throwing documents all over the floor. They didn't leak it. It was in response to a suit he filed. In a court filing... But then it turns out, you know, we learn from this indictment and from the pictures his aides are taking that the way the FBI meticulously laid these documents out, frankly, not that far from tr- the boxes of documents just splayed all over the floor in a storage unit at Mar-a-Lago. Not sorry, in a storage room.
0: I was gonna say, or bathroom, or bathroom,
1: <laughs> or stage, yeah, or stage, or. Bedroom. That's a really good point. How yeah. it, the conflation that.
0: All right, guys. Thank you very much. Stick with us in the 8 a.m. hour. One of Donald Trump's fiercest critics, Congressman Adam Schiff, will join CNN this morning. What's his reaction to the indictment?
1: But up next, autopsy res- results now reveal Olympian Tori Bowie died of childbirth complications. A closer look at this troubling trend in healthcare next. Plus,
0: Sir Paul McCartney asking for help from, now, artificial intelligence. What this means for new Beatles music and how he's coming together with AI so you can hear John Lennon's voice. Very good
10: tease.
0: We do have new details this morning about the shocking, tragic, sudden death of U.S. track star Tori Bowie. According to her autopsy report, the 32-year-old three-time Olympic medalist died from complications of childbirth in May. Those complications may include, quote, respiratory distress and eclampsia. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Camila Phillips. She's an OBGYN and founder of Cala Women's Health. It's good to have you, doctor. Thank and I'm you. joined at the table by uh, someone about to go through childbirth, <laughs> someone who's gone through it, somebody who's gone through it, somebody who's been in the room for four. Um, and you, you look at what happened to her, and we're gonna talk about this big picture for for everyone at these different stages. Mm -hmm. So young, so healthy, so active, and yet this happens. Yeah.
17: Well, first of all, I do want to reassure people that pregnancy is generally a very safe experience. But we do have an incidence of preeclampsia in this country that is increasing. And basically, it is due to high blood pressure in pregnancy. And I think in this instance, while the autopsy is limited, that maybe she didn't know she had preeclampsia and then suffered a negative uh, side effect, eclampsia, as a result.
0: Okay. So when I was reading about this at first, I thought, I don't know what eclampsia is. I know what
17: preeclampsia is. Can you explain the difference and how people can even know? Right. So preeclampsia is basically an increase in your blood pressure after about 20 weeks. And most of the time, it's well managed if it's identified, treated with blood pressure medicines, and then the patient delivered Eclampsia is actually a subset of that, 1% to 2%, which is hallmarked by extreme increases in blood pressure and, most importantly, seizure. Seizure can lead to loss of consciousness, respiratory depression, if the blood pressures are very high, even stroke and, in this case, death.
1: What I was going to ask is, I think I was very lucky, one that... I was the husband in this relationship and wasn't having to think through this in an uh, acute and, uh, manner. But also, we had great doctors. We had great care. We were regularly being checked, blood pressure, and all of that type of stuff. That is not necessarily the norm. In fact, I think people would be stunned to realize how little that is the norm in our country when you look at uh, right, maternal, maternal. Morta- mortality, um, which is stunning, particularly in terms of how it has grown over the course of the last three or four years. Why? Right. The wealthiest country in the world. Why?
17: Right. I think... Being the wealthiest country in the world, we really need to reassess our priorities and prioritize maternal health. You know, women these days are having babies at an older age. We're using IVF more. Um, African-American women in particular have higher rates of maternal uh, mortality. And all of these things combined are leading to our rates of maternal mortality being three to four times of their white counterparts. So um, despite the technology, education, education, access um, addressing racism in medicine and society which does impact our health care and the delivery specifically to black women is something that we need to prioritize
5: you know obviously i'm sitting at the table as a black woman and have um had two children after my first child i almost died i had i was hemorrhaging i'll save all the details of it had to have multiple transfusions and this was me going into it believing that one i was an educated woman i i relatively speaking, was a woman of means compared to some. Um, and the idea of being my own champion was always on my mind because I was hearing the stories about the bedside manner of some doctors or not taking the pain that a black woman feels very seriously. I remember that chart on the wall with smiley faces. Tell me your pain. And I was like, it's not an emoji. I'll tell you that right now. Um, And wanting wanting me to go through labor as opposed to the C-section that I was requesting because I knew that was going to be the ultimate end. And it was. How can people be their own champion in those rooms? Because I'm not a doctor. I, I was scared like anyone else. I desperately wanted my child to be healthy and for me to live through the childbirth as
17: well. What do you recommend yeah. for people? Yeah, I really think it's important for any person considering pregnancy to actually start preparing for pregnancy before you get pregnant. And that's with the preconception visit where you meet with your OBGYN or your primary care doctor and really identify things that you can optimize before you even get pregnant. Once you get pregnant, it is imperative that you find and create a team of people that you trust, people that you know hear you, and people that respect your wishes as you go through this process. I also think it's important to be flexible because we understand that pregnancy can change on the the drop of a hat like your experience with hemorrhage. And so being with a team that knows, loves, and respects you is really paramount to having safe outcomes.
3: You know, obviously, as a currently pregnant person, like this story has really stuck with me because it is just sort of, you know, a worst case scenario. Another thing to be, I think, worried about, even though I appreciate you saying mm-hmm. that, you know, it still is rare. But, I, you know, I wonder in cases like this, if people, if it is the quality of the healthcare, if it's people just not appreciating just what a physically taxing process you are going through here, and how frequently you do need to be checking in with
17: your medical professionals. Yeah, I think people don't realize how taxing pregnancy is. We, as working women Mm -hmm. especially, sort of downplay the struggle and the physicality of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is that it is important that you know the warning signs of preeclampsia and not ignore them. Headaches that don't go away, changes in your vision, Mm pain in your chest or under your breast and check your blood pressure report those concerns to your physician so that they can be addressed as well um, and properly managed for safer outcomes thank you so much doctor shining a light on on all of this thank you for having me of course
1: well former president trump claiming he had quote every right to keep the classified documents he took from the white house we'll break down the presidential records act with our legal panel and what happens now coming up ahead
6: the
18: nearly 234 years of the American presidency. The very first time that a former
19: president of the United States has been arrested and arraigned.
20: The first ever to face years in prison, if convicted.
3: The people in charge of this country do
0: not love America.
21: We need to be straightforward about this and not play political
14: games.
2: It's a political persecution, like something straight out of a fascist or communist nation. He knew the significant information and he intended to to use
20: it for his own benefit. If just half of the evidence that we've seen is true, it's really
4: almost indefensible. I can't defend what's alleged. These are serious allegations. We can't just deny what President Trump did was wrong. It's clear as day, wrong.
22: This is Trump in true form. He says one thing to his supporters, says another thing privately.
0: Pardon Donald J. Trump for these offenses. National security issues shouldn't be partisan.
18: We have to take this seriously.
21: Had he not lied through his lawyers, he wouldn't be in this situation. I would not feel comfortable with a convicted felon in the White House.
0: Good morning, everyone. We are so glad that you are with us on quite a morning after a day that made history that is for sure the first time a former president has ever ever been arraigned on federal charges. Donald Trump pleading not guilty to all 37. And now it is the morning after, and we see what is ahead.
1: There's the political, there's the legal. There's also the fact and the lie. We're going to go through true. all of that in the course of the next couple of hours. Now, the former president wasted no time raising money for his presidential campaign after he became the first former president in U.S. history to be arrested on federal charges.
2: Four, three, four.
1: Well, just hours after he pleaded not guilty to 37 felony counts in Miami, he held a fundraiser at his golf club in New Jersey. He also delivered a speech that was full of misleading and full of false claims, including his dubious argument that a president can take whichever documents he wants whenever he leaves office.
2: Threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law. Whatever documents the president decides to take with him, he has the right to do so. It's an absolute right. This is the law.
0: Federal prosecutors say Trump illegally hoarded classified documents containing some of America's most closely guarded secrets, including secrets about our nation's nuclear program. He allegedly stored them in places like his bedroom and a bathroom next to a toilet at Mar-a-Lago and showed them to people without security clearance. President Biden has refused to comment on Trump's indictment or arrest, and he, again, refused yesterday.
15: Uh, Would you comment on the arrest of the former president,
16: sir?
0: No. We have team coverage. Caitlin Polance outside the courthouse in Miami. For us again this morning, Elena Treen is live near Bedminster. Arlette is standing by at the White House. Ellie Honig, Laura Coates at the Magic Hall. Sarah Murray, Shelby Talcott here in studio. Morning, guys. Let's start with you, Caitlin. You were there sort of previewing this with the rooster, by the way, yesterday morning. I'm sure they're greeting you again this morning. But talk about what happened yesterday and what you saw in the courtroom because no
23: cameras... So we we can't see his demeanor. That's right. So this was quite a stoic proceeding. It was about 50 minutes inside the courtroom. Uh, I had a clear view of Donald Trump and he sat beneath a light that really lit him up in the courtroom. His hair uh, was quite bright. He was wearing a brighter Navy suit than anyone else around him. But he was slumped over when you walk in and you see him. When the judge took the bench, he was Lagging to stand whenever you're supposed to rise when the judge says all rise, uh, and you know, most, for most of the proceeding, he sat with his arms crossed, sat back, uh, clearly with a feeling of indignation or some sort of frustration with the proceeding. Occasionally, he was whispering to his attorney but Donald Trump himself he did not speak once in this proceeding a little bit unusual for a federal court arraignment like this the judge asked him no direct questions instead referred to him as the former president uh, throughout the proceeding and his lawyer spoke on his behalf his lawyer Todd Blanche stood up and was the one that said to the court that he enters a plea of not guilty at this time uh, Jack Smith the special counsel he was also in the room so we get this rare glimpse of Smith And really, the first time these two men have ever been in the same room like this, Smith had quite an entourage around him, and there was quite a lot of security, too, for a proceeding like this. But really, all of these things coming together, Mark, how significant this moment is, that Donald Trump is being placed under arrest for federal charges, and he is being told, these are your charges, and you now must abide by the court's rules as you fight these, as you say you will, as it goes to
1: trial. You know, and Caitlin, some of those rules, some of those restrictions, but also the fact that the president's alleged co-conspirator was not arraigned yesterday presents the question, what actually happens next here? How does this move forward? Walk us through that.
23: Right. So the next thing that's on the calendar right now is that Walt Nada, Trump's co-defendant, the man accused of moving boxes on his behalf that had classified documents in them around Mar-a-Lago to avoid the Justice Department finding them, essentially. Nada, he has to come back in about two weeks uh, or enter an appearance in some way saying that he will be pleading not guilty at this time. The reason he didn't right now is because he didn't have a lawyer in Florida yet to represent him. He does have a lawyer who's represented him from some time, but they're still trying to nail down exactly who's going to help this case move forward in this particular system. Uh, but these two men, one of the restrictions that they walk out of court with, and one of the things that is one of the first issues that Trump's side uh, had some ish took some issue with, took some dispute with, is a decision by the judge uh, to put over this case, the, the order that both Donald Trump and Walt Notta cannot. Be speaking to any other witnesses or one another about the facts and the details of this case as it moves forward. Now that's going to be difficult because Trump has a lot of people in his employment, including Nada himself, whom yesterday he was speaking, he was traveling with.
1: Definitely. Fascinating, dynamic. Caitlin Polantz will certainly be checking back in this morning. Thanks.
23: Okay, let's go to Elena Train. She's now at Trump's
0: golf club near Bedminster, New Jersey, after he had the big fundraiser last night. He's using this for politics to try to boost support, boost campaign donations. What was it like last night?
9: Right. Well, uh, there are a few notable things that I took away from his speech, Poppy and Phil. The first is that he reverted to the well-worn playbook that we've seen him use time and time again. In these situations, he called these charges political and argued that they amounted to election interference. Uh, He also claimed that he was entitled to taking these documents with him and that others were not prosecuted for doing the same thing. Of course, the prosecutors in this case argue that that's not true, that he kept some of the nation's most sensitive national security documents and that his unwillingness to hand them over amounts to obstruction. So that's the first thing. The second thing I found pretty striking was his tone. Uh, he was surrounded by his most sympathetic supporters and his fiercest allies. That's the type of environment that Donald Trump tends to rely on to appear defiant and give off the public image that he's pushing back. But uh, he did sound angry. And that's something I know that some of his advisors picked up on as well. He also did not linger After his remarks, he didn't mingle with the crowd. He pretty immediately left the outdoor area at his club and then went back inside. Um, And then the third thing I would note is the substance. Uh, My colleague Kristen Holmes and I spoke with some Donald Trump allies prior to his speech, and they told us that they were hoping it would be more forward looking, that uh, he would focus on his reelection effort and some of his 2024 agenda items. But he did very little of that. He spent the majority of his roughly... 30-minute remarks uh, railing against his opponents, namely President Joe Biden and his 2016 presidential rival Hillary Clinton. And he also specifically went after special counsel Jack Smith. And that's something I know that his advisors had urged him against doing, but he went ahead and did that anyway. Elena Treen, we will check back. Thank you very much.
1: Well, this morning we're getting a clearer look at some of the potential defenses and tactics Donald Trump's legal team could use in his case. Among them is his, and I stress his, interpretation of the Presidential Records Act, which he invoked repeatedly last night.
2: Under the Presidential Records Act, which is civil, not criminal, I had every right to have these documents. The crucial legal precedent is laid out in the most important case ever on this subject known as the Clinton
1: Sox case. I love the Clinton Sox case being the most important case <laughs> ever. Wasn't However, the actual, I don't think the actual that was the, name the, the, the of the title case, of the case. No, know. I don't think that was it. Uh, it's a good shorthand, though. For those who don't know, and I don't blame you if you don't, the Clinton Sox reference stems from a case involving former President Bill Clinton. Now, he in a store, uh, a historian Recorded audio interviews with Clinton during his time in the White House. Uh, That historian told GQ that Clinton stashed the audio cassettes of those interviews in his sock drawer. Now, a right-leaning nonprofit sued for access to those tapes, arguing they included classified information, but lost the case because the judge ruled, quote, "...the Presidential Records Act does not confer any mandatory or even discretional authority on the archivist. Under the statute, this responsibility is left solely to the president." Now, Trump and his allies are trying to use that ruling to his advantage. Joining us now to discuss are CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, CNN chief legal analyst Laura Coates, and national security attorney Bradley Moss. Um, Bradley, my understanding is this is not a great defense, uh, and what is being cited isn't very relevant. Uh, But can you (laughs) walk through the comparison to the Clinton case and whether it works or doesn't as a defense?
24: Yeah. It has no comparison to the present situation. So, what happened in the you know quote unquote Clinton socks case was yes, he had former President Clinton had made these audio tapes. They clearly fell within the definition of personal records under the Presidential Records Act. They were never ever designated as anything other than personal records, and he took them with him obviously after he left the White House. Judicial Watch, the nonprofit, sued to try to get a judge to order the National Archives, the archivist at the the archives to challenge that designation. And the judge simply said, the law doesn't give me the authority to make the archivist do this. The archivist, if it wanted to, arguably could have brought some kind of challenge, some civil action itself, but I can't make them do so. That has nothing, nothing, no way, shape or form, nothing to do with what we're currently talking about. The records at issue in the indictment were originally agency records they became presidential records when they were sent to D- Donald Trump in the White House. They always were presidential records. They were always classified, and they always qualified as national defense information. When he left the White House under the Presidential Records Act, he was supposed to let the archivist take control of that. He was not supposed to walk off with them, and he certainly couldn't keep them in Mar-a-Lago in any of the num- you know, various unsecured locations that were listed in the indictment. His team will try to raise this case in pretrial motions. It will fail.
0: They they certainly will. We heard it. I believe Byron Donalds brought it up yesterday Uh in the interview he did with Phil. Ellie, to you, I think the reason that uh, many defendants of the president in this are clinging to this case is because of the words of Judge Amy Berman Jackson when she said this is left solely to the president. Ultimately, these tapes were viewed as sort of an audio form of a personal diary. Right. But can you explain why her words in this decision do not hold water, as Bradley was just saying,
15: yep. in this case? L- let me try to simplify presidential records. Generally, all presidential records are going to fall in one of two categories. One, sensitive government documents. The other, I think to use your phrase that you used earlier today, tchotchkes, which is <laughs> sometimes the Yiddish is the best. The but, Latin term. Yeah. Personal Belongings, souvenirs, that kind of I stuff. I know,
0: but Judicial Watch said that Clinton talked about things that were security-related and classified on the tapes.
15: Right, so the way it works is the archives gets it presumptively. It starts with the National Archives. That's what the Presidential Records Act says. And then if the president, or former president in this case, can establish that they are personal, that they're not related to anything government-related, then the, the president gets to keep those records, right? So there's a process, though. The president has to go through it. The president doesn't get to keep them in the first place. They start with the archives. And then, after you go through the process, usually archives and the presidents agree on what gets to come and what gets to go. So this is the Opposite of that, Donald Trump took them all for himself and says, essentially, I get to decide. In fact, the archives get to decide as a result of that long process.
5: And remember, every court case has to do with what is the question before the court? It's not let's have a general esoteric uh, professorial debate. What is the question you're asking? The, what is the prayer for relief, as they call it? Mm-hmm. In that case, it was the idea of I'd like you to make an entity do something. I'd like you to make them enforce their own laws in some way or own statute. And that's the courts dealing with that issue. But the analogies regarding Clinton, whether it's Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, are going to keep coming up for this very reason. It's about the substance of the information where you find the analogy, classified or sensitive material as the information. But this case before Trump is about the tangible documents, one. Remember, the Hillary Clinton email discussions is about classified information contained within, without the headings or the actual documents. And perhaps most importantly, the core of this indictment has to do obstruction and willful retention of documents and conspiracy that's where this really meets a fork in the road that goes towards a prosecution where the analogy is no longer apropos
1: i think that actually ties directly into what i wanted to ask bradley about and that is you know the president is very fixated on the idea and and his defenders of the espionage act utilizing the espionage act no one is saying the president is spying on anybody that is not the technical definition of the espionage act uh can you explain to people not the full history of the Espionage Act, but what's being utilized here uh, and why it's important to actually understand that detail.
24: Yeah. So it's a horribly named statute in this context, and it predates the modern you know, classification regime and what we think of. The Espionage Act came out of World War I. It encompasses a number of things. One is what you typically think of, with spying, you know, selling documents, spying for a foreign government, things along those lines. But it also encompasses a number of other potential felony provisions, one of which is at issue here, which is the willful retention of national defense information, meaning you knew you had it and you knew it qualified as national defense information, and the failure to return it to the proper U.S. government authorities. That is what alleged there's no allegation in the charges that he has sold or disseminated the the national defense information that he has sold or uh, given it to somebody else. There's factual issues about how he knew it was still classified because he was talking about it with other people on those audio tapes. But they have not charged him with dissemination, just willful retention. It's important context. Bradley, thanks so much, guys. Stick with us. Trump's 2024
1: rivals divided on how to respond to his federal charges. Now his former vice president, Mike Pence, says he cannot defend his former boss.
0: Also, President Biden appears to want little to do with or nothing to do with Trump's federal charges. Why the White House is keeping quiet about this historic indictment. That's next. Welcome back, First Lady Joe Biden, ramping up her criticism of Republicans at two Democratic fundraisers in the Bay Area Tuesday night. The First Lady warning of what would happen if, quote, MAGA Republicans win, calling 2024 the most important election of our lives. Our Let Science joins us at the White House. You cover all things White House and particularly the First Lady. Significant that she went this far?
18: Well, Poppy, there's really this tale of two Biden approaches that is playing out at this moment surrounding the indictment of former President Donald Trump. The White House has really maintained a deliberate stay silent strategy. You don't see the campaign or the Democratic National Committee fundraising off of this event. And aides say that is all by design. Behind the scenes, uh, they don't want to provide any further fodder to former President Trump and his accusations of these investigations being politically motivated. And That is why you have repeatedly heard President Biden saying that he is not commenting on this matter, including last night in an exchange with our colleague, Jeremy Diamond.
15: Would you comment on the arrest of the former president, sir?
18: But there is one Biden who is speaking out, and that is the first lady. Over the course of the past two days, uh, you've heard her repeatedly in these Democratic fundraisers talk about the former president, Uh, specifically in one of those that took place in New York City. She expressed shock that many in the Republican Party are still supporting Trump despite the indictments. And yesterday in the Bay Area, she tried to present this election as a choice between what she described as the chaos and corruption of the Trump administration and the stability Provided by her husband, she said in those fundraisers, "quote We cannot go back to those dark days. You know what's in store if these MAGA Republicans win. We know it because we lived it. Remember how hard it was last time. This time it's going to be even harder." Now, uh, these comments came in a fundraiser where the cameras were off, and oftentimes those types of venues give politicians. Uh, and and, uh, surrogates a chance to speak a little bit more freely. But I think what those comments really highlight is the role that the First Lady could play heading into a campaign as she has shown a willingness to take on the former president at a time when the White House is staying silent.
0: Somehow we always find out what they say in their more candid moments at these fundraisers, Mm -hmm. right? What
1: Arlette's not telling you is the president in fundraisers where there are no cameras, that's where you learn more about what he's thinking, what he's doing, and Arlette knows this better than anybody because she's covered him for as long as she has. Yeah. Um, hi, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Arlite.
0: Hey. Thanks, Arlite.
1: All right, that's my day job, guys. Um, <laughs> the former president attacking the special counsel last night following his arrest and arraignment in Florida on 37 federal charges related to his handling of classified information. Take a listen.
2: This is called election interference and in yet another attempt to rig and steal a presidential election. More importantly, it's a political persecution like something straight out of a fascist or communist nation.
1: All right, Sarah Murray, Um, not only are you uh, extremely involved in the reporting on this case and several of the investigations ongoing, you covered his campaign in 2016 Mm -hmm. every single day um, and survived. Uh, What's your takeaway after hearing that response to this historic moment?
3: Look, it's it's a loser of a message to say, well, I took all these documents with me because I really thought they were mine. And that's that. And this is all about me. He's got to make it about, you know, a you versus me mentality. I think we've seen that over and over again in his speeches. It is remarkable to me that they have sort of settled on this being an, an election interference issue, because this is what these two outstanding investigations focus on. I mean, Jack Smith's January 6th investigation focuses on Trump's efforts to meddle in the end of the 2020 election, the peaceful transfer of power. That is what the Fulton County District Attorney is focusing on in her investigation into efforts by Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the election results. So I think from a political messaging standpoint, it sort of opens up the question of, okay, well, what about these other things that are going on?
0: Ellie, I do want to ask you, because you have an interesting and important take on the argument we heard from former President Trump last night about you can't do this, this is election interference he's pointing to the trial calendar could bump right up to the key points in the election. And because it, he has to be in the courtroom, it's not civil. He's yeah. got to be in the courtroom.
15: Uh, so I want to be clear. There is no evidence to support the claim that this prosecution by DOJ is political in any way. There's nothing to connect this to the White House. I have to say, Byron Donalds came on yesterday and said twice that this indictment had to be approved by the White House counsel. He, that's fabricated. There's no evidence of that. If it did happen, let's see the proof. But. There's just nothing making that links this to anything political. However, I do have to criticize all three prosecutors here, because by taking as long as they've taken, they've created this situation or contributed to this situation where Donald Trump can correctly say, well, look at this. They're lobbying their charges only after I've announced my candidacy. And now when are the trials going to land in 2024? All three of them, Alvin Bragg, Fonnie Willis. Merrick Garland. Jack Smith came on Bonnie later.
5: Bonnie Willis hasn't brought charges yet, but we'll, we'll see what happens. She's the
15: slowest of all.
5: And by the way, this, is, but this could count against him, though, in the same sense. For that very reason, Jack Smith and team could go into this Florida courtroom and say... We are anticipating the fact that this will be a removal from the campaign trail for at least 21 days of this potential presumptive frontrunner mm-hmm. in the GOP primary. That's why we stand ready to try the case yeah. right now. I want motions in 45 days. We'll, we'll respond to everything at that point in time. It's going to be re- unrealistic in many respects, yeah. but the same token, this will now be the onus on but Trump to say why he can't be ready.
0: That's what I was going to say. Isn't a lot of deference in these cases given, though, to counsel, defendants counsel to yeah. have yes. time to get ready so delay, delay, delay was some good lawyering could be really successful.
15: When Jack Smith said at his press conference, we're ready for trial, that's what every prosecutor, we are trained. you That's the only thing you ever say. You never say, judge, we need more time as a prosecutor. But really, the speedy trial right belongs to the defendant. Mm-hmm. If he wants to force a, a trial within 70 days, he can. And the person who sets the trial date is the judge. And, and of course, D- Donald Trump's team is going to try to delay. That's the best, maybe only defense I see right here. And all those issues that we just talked about challenging the search warrant, uh, challenging the constitutionality of Evan Corcoran, the use of Evan Corcoran statements, which you talked about before. Um, those all have to be litigated. So I think they have a quite good chance. I, it, people say, is, is this going to get in before the 2024 election? We don't know. But I think he has quite a good chance, Donald Trump, to stretch this beyond that. You
5: know, I've been thinking about this, as I often do. Um, and in thinking about the idea, just look at the reaction to the civil defeat with E. and Carroll. Mm-hmm. He bankrolled off of it. Um, There is something to be said. There's been many commentators talking about the jury pool in, say, West Palm Beach versus one in Washington, D.C. I could see an argument being made as to wanting to resolve the issue quicker if you believe that an acquittal maybe even a hung jury, is in your immediate future and then have yet another instance to either campaign off of or to demonstrate that this is some sort of political witch hunt. And so I wonder if it's going... I mean, I, yeah. I as an attorney, I would be counseling my client to have <laughs> protracted proceedings right. and elongate this calendar, but if there is some delusion that there is a guarantee, which is never the case, of an acquittal or a guilty verdict... I bet that's factoring in to figure out when the calendar and the speed of trial right. would be.
1: So I've been thinking about you thinking about this.
5: <laughs> i been <was> thinking about <laughs> that, too. Because I try and
1: draft off of whatever you say and co-opt it <laughs> and use it the mind. But the, the, how the political element fits into this, I think it's really important. I, I do want to play what Nikki Haley, one of the uh, Republican primary candidates, said about this yesterday. Take a listen.
10: When you look at a pardon, the issue is less about guilt and more about what's good for the country. And I think it would be terrible for the country to have a former president in prison for years because of a documents case. That's something you see in a third world country. I saw that at the United Nations. So I would be inclined in favor of a pardon.
1: So you have the president and his team trying to figure out the messaging, the timing, how the legal and the political mesh together. You have the other candidates looking at this and trying to figure out the messaging and the timing and how this all links together. Um, What was your thought process when you heard what uh, the ambassador said?
6: I thought it was interesting that she was going so far as to say that she would potentially pardon Trump, but at the same time walking that fine line of the day before, noting that these are really serious allegations that her husband is about to deploy to Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, But it just broadly represents this fine line that Republican candidates are having to walk between admitting that these are really serious charges while also not angering the Republican base, who views it as politicized and is very defensive of the former president.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating. We're going to be Quite a needle, like right. and uh, operatives trying to figure that out right now. Good luck. All right, guys, stay with us. We're going to be back to you soon. The upcoming and final song from the Beatles will include John Lennon's voice, how the band is using AI to make that happen.
0: Also, the Las Vegas Knights crushed the Florida Panthers to win their first Stanley Cup. The highlights next. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
16: It has happened in Vegas. The Cup's going to stay in
2: Vegas. And for the first time, the Golden Knights are Stanley
13: Cup
1: Noted in historic hockey town, Las Vegas, (laughs) congratulations. It's the first Stanley Cup for the Vegas Golden Knights. Pretty sure it won't be the first party Las Vegas has ever seen. The Golden Knights defeated the Florida Panthers 9-3 last night in Las Vegas, wrapping up the series in five games. Vegas captain Mark Stone had a goal in each period, the first player since 1922, to net a hat trick in the Stanley Cup clinching win.
2: Unbelievable. Just looked in my teammates' eyes when I got it. One of the craziest feelings I've ever had. Um, Just to know that I did it with my 25, 30 best friends um, makes it that much more special.
1: Uh, They won the Cup in just their sixth season as an NHL franchise. As an Ohio sports fan, that feels unfair. Also, this morning, new music coming from The Beatles. Thanks to artificial intelligence. Paul McCartney telling BBC Radio that artificial intelligence was used to isolate John Lennon's voice from an old demo in order to finish a song that will be released, wait for it, this year.
2: So it has great uses. So when we came to make what will be the last Beatles record, it was a demo that John had um, that we worked on, and we just finished it up and be released this year. We were able to take John's voice and get it pure through this AI, so that then we could mix the record as you would normally do. You know, so it gives you it gives you some sort of uh, leeway. So there's a good side to it, and then a scary side.
1: Well, joining us now is CNN senior media analyst and senior media reporter for Axios, Sarah Fisher, and CNN chief legal analyst Laura Coates. Back with us, won't let her leave. Um, <laughs> sir, I want to start with you. I- I'm fascinated to see how Beatles fans take this. Is however, that why you asked me if I was a Beatles fan? Yeah, I want to gauge your interest. Who's not a Beatles fan? Um, but what saying on the end there, the good side and the scary side. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about the scary side. There's got to be some good side to it, too. What's your sense of what this development means as we all try and figure this out right now?
25: It's all about permission. Like, that's been the huge issue with AI is whether or not people are violating copyright laws, whether or not people have permission to use someone's IP, their voice, their likeness. What this signals is that this could be a really great thing if you have someone's permission to do it and if you're working collaboratively. Now, obviously it's hard when somebody is deceased to go back and get their you know, permission. In this case, it's band members and it's close colleagues, friends. It makes sense that they would want this to move forward. I think Beatles fans are gonna obviously be excited. This is going to be their last album. They're gonna get to hear a voice they wouldn't have otherwise heard. But to Paul McCartney's point, there could be a downside. If somebody who wasn't doing this with consent was trying to put out another Beatles album, we would have a problem.
0: Or who owns the voice then? Who owns the, the John Lennon AI? Well, that's
5: the next voice. frontier of all this, right? And um, first of all, AI would be hard-pressed to be able to come up with the lyric of, like, I'm the walrus, I'm the Eggman, cuckoo, ca-choo. Yeah. Good luck, AI, <laughs> right. on that. Um, but so you don't know what I listen to. You have no idea what I, my playlist is. Thank you very much. You don't I even love, know. I'll do a whole thing all day. I just love that day. you're
1: challenging AI, which is going to really I work ch- against you. I challenge when it takes a, over the you world. You know,
11: you're right. I'm
5: just kidding. Um, but the <laughs> idea of intellectual property, you're so right about this. Because one thing, if it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek or at the permission of somebody, but what about the estate? of somebody who is not giving the permission? What about somebody whose voice is being used for a track, for a collaborative effort that they do not want to have there? You could say, it's not actually your voice, it's your likeness. There are laws to protect that sort of thing, but they have not caught up with AI in any stretch. And Congress, really hard pressed to be able to be at the forefront of advancement for technology, to be able to figure out, do you regulate it? Or do you regulate the behavior itself? Or do you regulate the ability to use it in the first instance? Remember Elon Musk? I think Steve Wozniak recently came out with a letter to talk about the challenges of AI. Mm-hmm. But in the form of creative expression, I mean, it's incredible to think about being able to recreate something like this in this fashion.
1: But there's got to be guardrails. Well, and I think it's like the, the risks... The same day this story is coming out, there's a hearing in the Senate, the Senate Judiciary Committee committee holding a hearing on artificial intelligence and human rights on Tuesday. Lawmakers heard from a woman who was the victim of a deep fake kidnapping extortion scam in which scammers used her daughter's voice to demand millions of dollars in ransom. The plot was exposed as a scam by the police, told her nothing that they could do to seek justice because no real crime was committed. Listen to what she told the committee.
18: I will never be able to shake that voice and the desperate cries for help out of my mind. It's every parent's worst nightmare to hear your child pleading with fear and pain, knowing that they are being harmed and that you're helpless. The longer this form of terror remains unpunishable, the farther and more egregious it will become. There is no limit to the depth of evil AI can enable.
1: Sarah, Laura makes a great point. Lawmakers are not on the forefront of this stuff. They generally are behind about everybody else in terms of understanding and ability to do something. What can be done, either in the regulatory space or in the legislative space.
25: So in the social media era, lawmakers were so slow, Phil, to get on top of this. At least now, we are not even a year into the generative AI era in terms of it being made public. And lawmakers are already doing educational hearings. So that gives me a little bit of optimism. What can they do? They can do transparency efforts, meaning people who are creating AI need to be transparent about how they're programming it, things like that. They can have disclosure hearings where people need to disclose sort of what types of tools they're using to train their programs. So there's a lot of things that they could pass. Congress is gridlocked, but this seems to be an issue where there is bipartisan support. The one thing I will say though, I think a lot of these issues will get litigated in courts. I think you're gonna have people who are gonna go and sue different companies because their name, image, and likeness are being used in ways that they didn't give permission or because they feel like they're being scammed. And the court will then have to sort of interpret where our current laws stand to adhere to AI.
1: We're out of time. I do want the record to reflect. She's optimistic about Congress. That's true. He (laughs) looked at me me because I (laughs) I
0: had another question, but I'll ask you next time. We're
1: going to get yelled at if we don't. Guys, thank (laughs) you so much. Thank you very very much. much.
0: Republican Senator J.D. Vance says he will hold the Biden administration's judicial nominees. Hold them up indefinitely because of the Trump indictment, the impact and reaction ahead.
1: Ohio Republican Senator J.D. Vance is vowing to block all of President Biden's Justice Department nominees in protest of former President Trump's indictment and Donald Trump is gonna be put in prison for the rest of his life, that's what they're
11: trying to do for declassifying documents as he has the constitutional authority to do. It's crazy, and we cannot continue to give the Department of Justice free reign oh, to set themselves loose funding. on the american people unlimited funding unlimited resources and unlimited personnel we can as a u.s senate effectively grind the appointments process in merrick garland's department of justice to a halt why don't we do it the american people i think expected of you- us
1: senior congressional correspondent lauren fox is live on capitol hill this morning fox i want to deconstruct like that entire statement based on the difference between nominations and appropriations and actual funding and funding levels. <laughs> but which we know we we'll do later because <laughs> people would probably be mad at me. What kind of impact tangibly will this actually have, this threat?
22: Well, he's arguing that he could grind this nomination process to a halt. But the reality, Phil, as you know, is that he can really only slow it down. He does not have the power as one senator to block nominees forever. Instead, what he can do is force Senate leaders to burn valuable time on the Senate floor. Usually, you can fast-track a nomination if you have agreement from all 100 senators. All J.D. Vance is saying here is that they no longer are going to have his agreement. agreement. Now, it's important to note there are only currently two nominees in the pipeline. So that gives you a sense that even if you have to burn all of your time for each of those nominees, that's probably about two weeks on the Senate floor, Phil. So it's not a considerable amount of time at this point. Juxtapose that to the hold that Tommy Tuberville has right now on all Pentagon nominees and those promotions. That's 250 people waiting in the pipeline. If you were to put those on the floor, you would burn through considerable amounts of time. And typically, those are not controversial, right? So that's the big difference here between what we're seeing from Tommy Tuberville when it comes to Pentagon promotions and what you're seeing here in J.D. Vance's statement. But this is part of a much broader effort to push back on the indictment against former President Donald Trump. And Democrats are arguing it is a political move. Here's Dick Durbin, who's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate.
8: If you're in favor of law enforcement and the administration of justice, then not filling vacancies of judges doesn't help at all. It's very transparent that this is a political reaction to the uh, arraignment of the former president.
22: And over in the House of Representatives, there's even more actions being taken. A lot of Republicans calling to defund the special counsel's office. There are other calls to defund a new FBI building. So that process on the appropriation side is going to take place in the House. But we should always note that the House can do what they want in their chamber once it goes to the Senate, which Democrats control. That has no chance of passing. This is why I
1: always text Lauren. She, like, makes you smarter and contextualizes contextualizes things. what matters?
0: This is true. And then I ask her how her Luca is and tell her how my Luca <laughs> is. We have a little voice.
22: Anytime. Luca. I'll talk Stop. about my Luca anytime.
3: Thank you. To one up. Thank
0: you. one-up Thank you, Lauren. Let's open <laughs> Thanks, this up. Um, guys, what do you make of this, Sarah? Obviously making a statement, J.D. Vance, the tougher of All thing is more consequential in terms of how many people it would hold
3: up It is. Look, I mean, the reason that J.D. Vance is where he is today is because of Donald Trump's endorsement, so I don't think it's totally... That's right. Yes. I don't think it's such a surprise to see that he would be one of the people who is not only out there vocally supporting Donald Trump but willing to make, you know some sort of show about how he's doing it. I think what's been more striking to me is to hear some of these reservations that have begun to emerge from some members of Donald Trump's own party over, you know, the last day or so as people start to get more in the weeds of what they're learning in this indictment.
6: And I think uh, to add to that, Trump's team is keeping an eye on who is saying what, who's supporting him. They told us last night as much that, you know, he keeps track of it, but so do they. And so that's notable because some of these lawmakers have, Trump has such a hold on them. And so it's understandable in some way that they feel kind of obligated almost to defend him in this way. Um, And and I think that's interesting from a broader perspective because it's representative of Congress as a whole on the Republican side, kind of this faction of the party who is so tied to Donald Trump because they feel like... they owe him their success almost in a way. Tommy Tuberville
1: was in Bedminster yes. last night, missed a vote that yep. leadership oh, expected really? him to be at <laughs> so he could get to Bedminster. And
6: that's notable as well, yeah. uh, of
0: course. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate it. Report cards are out now for students. We're getting new data this morning on how children across the country Graded their schools.
1: And this morning, more than 45 million people across the South are under severe storm threat. This stretches from Texas to Georgia. The Storm Prediction Center says there could be large hail, wind gusts, and a couple strong tornadoes. Our weather team is tracking this system. Stay with us. Well, welcome back. A Mississippi police officer who shot an 11-year-old boy after the child called 911 for help has now been suspended without pay. The Indianola Board of Aldermen voted to suspend Sergeant Greg Capers after he shot a Murray in the chest while responding to a domestic disturbance call at the child's home.
12: He said, said, everybody come out with your hands up. I Then I came running inside the living room It then then I remember. I heard the big bang.
1: The boy's mother says he suffered a collapsed lung, fractured ribs and a lacerated liver. She's seeking the officer's termination, charges against him and suing for $5 million. Sergeant Capers is set to appear for a probable cause hearing this fall. The shooting captured on the officer's body cam remains under investigation.
0: Also new this morning, students across the country turning the tables and grading their schools. Just hours ago, Gallup and the Walton Family Foundation released a poll of 5th through 12th graders. Our national correspondent, Athena Jones, is here on it. Wow, this I've never heard of this.
10: No, this is the first time they've done a survey like this. And they say they're going to keep doing it. They're going to do it year over year to be able to track these indicators and see if there's any improvement. And they argue that there is room for improvement or that the, s- the survey shows there is. It shows that students are overwhelmingly very neutral about how they feel about their schools. (laughs) Mediocre is the word that the Gallup representative spoke about that I talked to. Uh, She said that schools got got an overall grade of a B minus. Two-thirds of (laughs) students gave their schools an A or a B, but almost a quarter gave them a C. So some of that might have to do with the fact that they are not impressed by the teaching quality. That's another uh, area that got a low uh, rating. Hmm. When it comes to mental health uh, and supporting students' mental health, schools got an average of a C plus. So not so great there. Uh, Just 22% gave it an A. And this Gallup representative talked about a rising tide of unhappiness that's affecting people of all ages. They're seeing it in adults and in children, exacerbated by COVID. Uh, And when it comes to feeling excited about learning, schools, uh, kids gave their schools a C plus as well. And that is of course not what we want. We want kids to be excited to go to school each day. It's basically their job. And we want them to be excited about going to their job each day to learn. So those are some of the grades. Uh, that they shared
1: can i ask i think the obvious question in something like this is what about physical safety it's everywhere we see it constantly what are the kids saying about that this is much in the
10: news right because of uh, uh, gun violence at schools this is where schools got the best grades they got the best grades mm. on safety making kids feel safe and making them feel respected regardless of their race or ethnicity so on the safety grade schools got an average of a b 43 percent gave their school an a one thing I should note is there is a difference when it comes to race on, on some of these measures. When it comes to students feeling safe, black students were much less likely to say their schools made them feel safe, really? uh, made them feel respected regardless of race or ethnicity uh, and that sort of thing. Only a third of black students gave their schools an A on respecting mm-hmm. them for who they are regardless of their race or ethnicity. And then when it comes to feeling included, school uh, students gave schools a B minus average. So again... Mm-hmm. Room for improvement here, Uh, and and the Gallup representative I talked to really focus on the mental health side of things and saying that schools need to do better and communities need to do better in building resilient students who don't reach a crisis point. They're able to to kind of handle some of the challenges they face before they have an, an outburst of any sort.
0: So interesting.
10: It really is. They're going to keep doing this, and so it'll be interesting to see
1: yeah, to the how baseline it changes the over students. the years. Does yeah. does the
10: quality of teaching improve according to these students and that sort of thing? Do the schools get to know how they were graded by their students? <laughs> this is a <laughs> this is a massive uh, survey, so it's nationwide. We're talking about the survey itself was twelve to twenty five yeah. year olds, but they fo- of course focus on twelve to eighteen for the schools. So we're talking about more than two thousand responses. They did not break down for us. But on an individual basis, but as an overall picture, Mm -hmm. it's pretty telling. I think B minus, mediocre, blasé is another word she used. You want kids to be a lot more... Uh, than that. You don't want them to be blase about school.
5: Well, first of all, next year they have to feed them sweets before they take this survey. <laughs> yeah. And that's the key. <laughs> that's it Increases know, that's excitement. But, yeah. you know, I remember my son's only 10 years old. My daughter's nine. And I remember they had sort of a survey at their school about whether they felt supported. Oh, that's and good. And beyond. I was surprised by the findings and that my son said things like he didn't feel always supported yeah. and felt singled out. And I thought, this is a moment for a conversation. And it prompted me as a parent, to do better.
10: It's yeah. great to hear from the kids. Super.
1: Yeah, thoroughly. and it's constructive criticism. Where we was actually, this 40 years ago? I would have had some <laughs> things to
5: say. <laughs> it was nowhere. Yeah. Oh, they they didn't, didn't ask us. Fine they in
0: didn't
1: school. ask us our yes, opinion. I exactly. feel like you're doing okay. Whatever you were doing, it worked out for you. <laughs> all, through, all right. right. Thanks, we got to go, guys. guys. <laughs> <Stick with us. laughs> Athena's great report. Yeah, Thanks thank you. so much. All right. Former President Trump had a lot to say after he was arrested and arraigned for the second time.
2: The Espionage Act has been used to go after traitors and spies it has nothing to do with a former president legally keeping his own documents
1: yeah we're going to be fact checking those claims and more ahead stay with us
4: i have serious concerns about uh anybody that uh, has a reckless disregard for the handling of classified documents. A
8: military guy. He allegedly had national security information.
12: He's very problematic. There's a reason I'm not not defending it.
15: Would you be okay with that having I mean, a convicted felon as your nominee? I'd
14: just have to read the conviction. But no, honestly, on the surface, I would. That doesn't look good.
0: Really telling answers yeah. there. No, very much uh, so. That morning, and Capitol Hill. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast, bright and early 5 a.m. on the West. And Donald Trump is now. In the legal fight of his political life after being arrested on federal charges for allegedly mishandling and hiding classified documents, we're going to break down what happens next in this historic criminal probe.
2: This is called election interference, and it's a political persecution like something straight out of a fascist or communist nation.
1: We'll also be fact checking the long list of misleading and sometimes outright false claims the former president made during his speech last night after his arraignment.
0: Also, the lead manager of Trump's first impeachment, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, will join us live this hour to weigh in on these charges against the former president. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. here's where we begin. Former President Trump quickly turning this historic arrest and arraignment on federal charges into a campaign fundraiser last night, just hours after he turned himself in and pleaded not guilty to 37 felony counts in Miami. He delivered a defiant speech to a crowd of donors and supporters at his golf club in New Jersey. It was full of misleading claims, false claims, including Trump's dubious argument that presidents are allowed to keep whatever documents they want when they leave office.
1: Well, federal prosecutors say Trump illegally kept classified documents with some of the nation's most closely guarded secrets, including details about America's nuclear program. Then he hid them from the FBI. He allegedly stored them haphazardly in places like a bathroom next to a toilet at Mar-a-Lago and showed them off to people who didn't have security clearance. The current president, President Joe Biden, has refused to comment on Trump's indictment and, as you might expect, did so again yesterday.
15: Would you comment on the arrest of the former president, sir?
1: That was CNN's Jeremy Diamond at the White House. Now we have team coverage on all of these angles. Caitlin Polance was inside the courtroom for that historic arraignment. Daniel Dale will fact check Trump's claims in last night's speech. We have Ellie Honig, Laura Coates and John Miller standing by for expert analysis. But I do want to start with Caitlin Polance outside the courthouse in Miami. And Caitlin, you've done such a great job of giving us color about what was happening in a courtroom that we couldn't see Mm -hmm. or have access to. Walk people through what you were able to see.
23: Well, I was able to see Donald Trump, I was able to see Jack Smith, and I was able to see the room, this intense room, this silent room uh, that for 50 minutes, when the judge was presiding, uh, had to walk through a lot of procedural things. But uh, it was quite tense. There were many, many security people around Donald Trump. There were some members of the public able to witness this, but not many, just a handful. And then the press, 20 or so, maybe 30 members of the press, that were able to be in that room as well to witness the proceedings. Uh, And whenever Trump uh, was there, he seemed to be uh, in not a great mood, uh, honestly. He was slumped over for for some of the proceeding. He's a really tall man. um, Short, uh, he's taller than both of his lawyers, but when he was seated, he often was sat down lower than both of the lawyers on either of his sides. There were other times where he had uh, his arms crossed just listening to the judge. He looked at the prosecutor a few times, but not really. I don't believe there was any eye contact that Trump ever made with Jack Smith, the special counsel in that room. Uh, But you know, this proceeding, it was procedural, but it really marked an important start to this case. The former president of the United States being placed under arrest for these charges. And the beginnings of the proceedings that will head toward a trial. There was a judge that was doing this yesterday, a judge named Jonathan Goodman. He's a magistrate here in the Southern District of Florida. But at the end of the proceeding, he said, this is the end for me. Uh, It will go to others in this case. And that is indeed what will happen next. Donald Trump's co-defendant, who was in the courtroom tomorrow, he's expected to be entering a pleading of not guilty, just like Trump did yesterday. But at a later date, once he gets a lawyer in Florida to help him with his case, that'll be before a different judge. And then it's in the hands of Judge Eileen Cannon, the federal district judge, the lifetime appointee uh, by Donald Trump himself. And Judge Cannon will be shepherding this toward a trial.
1: You know, Caitlin, one of the hallmarks of CNN's great justice team, you, Evan Perez, Paula, um, a wide range of people who do great work, we've talked to Sarah Murray repeatedly, uh, is that it is a team effort. But our sources tell us that you had some pretty special help yesterday. Would you care to fill us in on that?
23: Phil, your sources are correct. We had a team of high school students from the Miami area who actually were assisting with, a, with us getting the news out because no one in the media, by order of the judge, was allowed to bring any electronics in. So we had no cell phones, we had no computers, and we were being held in a jury room for much of the day. And then when the proceedings began, I was able to physically go inside the courtroom itself, which there's no leaving, there's no talking to anyone, there's no electronics there. But the rest of our team, these high school students, Evan Perez, uh, and then two of our additional reporters on the justice team, Tierney Sneed and Hannah Rabinowitz, they were in that room strategizing like a like settlers of Catan, they were trying to figure out how to get access to two working pay phones in that jury room to call the news out and so they designated one of the high school students to receive notes from them and call the only local number one of the only local numbers they had because the phones only reached miami numbers to call into an editor who was able to then relay the news to the network, wow. get news out as what was happening in the courtroom regularly as they were watching. And uh, another thing that was really wonderful about this was one of these high school students had a watch. No one else on the team had a watch inside the building, so we designated him <laughs> Father Time.
0: Like a real, like an old school watch, not one of the
1: like phone I watches. I also love the effort that you guys watch, put in yeah. behind the scenes to actually make this
26: Stuff happening. Hey I also have out. to know that one of them spent the night before gathering quarters for the payphone, and <laughs> only to find out that they oh, don't there's the pay- rooster.
1: Also, so there's, there's the, the rooster, rooster, which everybody had to contend with. It's not a fake sound effect. Caitlin has been dealing with multiple rooster, rooster eye, over the course of the last couple of days. Um, it doesn't take anything away from the significance or history of the moment, but I think the dynamics and the logistics and the rooster uh, underscored underscore just how much effort the team put in, which we appreciate very much. Uh, this was the arraignment, and then we also had the speech Caitlin, last night. thank
0: you. Caitlin,
1: appreciate it, <laughs> and the team. Um, and we do want to talk about what the former president is doing, both on the legal side but also mm. the political side. And for both of those, we want to bring in CNN reporter Daniel Dale to fact-check some of the claims made by the former president last night when addressing the crowd at Bedminster. Uh, Daniel, Trump claimed that the Espionage Act shouldn't be applied in this case. Take a listen.
2: Charging a former president of the United States under the Espionage Act of 1917. Wasn't meant for this. The Espionage Act has been used to go after traitors and spies. It has nothing to do with a former president legally keeping his own documents.
1: All right, Daniel, there's the former president's contention. What are the facts?
11: So two big problems of fact here, Phil. First of all, these are not his own documents. They are the legal property of the federal government. Second of all, though, this idea that the Espionage Act is only meant for traitors and spies is just not true. Of course, there are provisions of the Espionage Act that target traitors and spies, but there's also the provision under which Trump and many people before him have been charged. It's known as 793E, and it makes it a crime to willfully retain national defense information and refuse to deliver it to the United States. Nothing in that provision requires you to be a spy, to to do any classic espionage, to even deliver the information to anyone. And as an example, you can go back and look at another indictment, the 2017 indictment of a former NSA contractor named Harold Martin, he was accused of taking a whole bunch of classified information and just keeping it in his car and his house. He was never accused in court of giving it to anyone, of being a spy. He was essentially portrayed as a kind of hoarder. He ended up pleaded guilty. So not a spy. This provision was applied and he was convicted and sentenced.
0: One, one other thing, General, that's so interesting is that the former president made the point that instead of the Espionage Act, the law that should be applied here is a presidential records act which actually isn't part of the indictment listen to this
2: threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers which just about every other president has done is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an american court of law as president the law that applies to this case is not the Espionage Act, but very simply, the Presidential Records Act, which is not even mentioned in this ridiculous 44-page indictment, under the Presidential Records Act, which is civil, not criminal. I had every right to have these documents.
0: Putting aside uh, the fact that that's not even in the indictment, if it were, does does the PRA absolve him of any of this?
11: It, it doesn't. The idea that the Presidential Records Act uh, absolves former President Trump here is like upside down, bizarro world stuff. That law, Poppy, is unequivocal. It says that all official records from a presidency are the property of the federal government, the National Archives, the moment that president leaves office. As one expert put it to me, the fact that Former President Trump violated the Presidential Records Act does not prevent him from being charged for also allegedly violating another law. And I'll add there's two other problems of fact in that quote we just played. Number one, he's not actually being threatened with 400 years in prison. Federal sentencing does not work by adding up the maximum possible sentence for each crime. So that's not realistic. And second of all, it's just not true that just about every other president has done what he's done. No other president in the Presidential Records Act era, so starting with President Ronald Reagan, has done anything like take a trolley of sensitive classified documents and refused to give them back to the federal government when asked repeatedly to do so.
1: Right.
0: They're in the willful retention um, allegation. Daniel Dale, thank you. Your fact checks are gold. We appreciate them.
1: And you can you. read more of Daniel Dale and Marshall Cohen's fact checks on CNN.com.
0: Let's bring in our chief legal analyst, Laura Coates, CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, and CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John so, Miller. Lo- you may have
1: like- seen John in the inception level before we introduced him jumping in <laughs> on the rooster and the team <laughs> thing. I, I, I just <laughs> want to, that, that was him. <laughs> that was John. The one and only. He's a cop. He observes right. them. But he knows who he is. The who one is and
0: only. Yeah. Okay, so shall we start, John We shall. With you, where do you want to begin?
26: Well, I think we're at. A very pivotal moment here because it's, you know, it's an indictment, but it's the second indictment. And there's a third indictment that's supposed to be coming out of Georgia, possibly if the grand jury so votes. Um, But this is a pivotal moment because right now there's a player in here, which Mm -hmm. is Judge Cannon, who can exert a lot of control over this or a little control that can really influence it. If Judge Cannon decides to fast track this case, decisions on motions and so on, Uh, this is the kind of thing that can be defining in the series of cases. And that is interesting because of Judge Cannon's past with this case. If, and what's, this has to happen at some point, which is the judge in Florida has to pick up the phone with the judge in New York state and maybe later with a judge in Georgia and say, all right, we can't all proceed at once. So which is, which is the case to go first? The difference between this case is it comes with the possibility of significant jail time. The New York case, uh, much less so. So we're literally going to have to, and I know my colleagues are going to weigh in on Judge Cannon because she's actually not just a pivotal, but controversial figure here.
15: Can you talk about why? So Judge Cannon is going to have, she's the judge. I mean, she's going to have a huge say. Here's why she's controversial, two things. One, she's a Trump nominee to the bench, 2020. Um, She was actually approved 56-21 by the Senate with 12 12 Democrats supporting her. Why does that make her controversial that she's a Trump nominee? Because he's now the defendant in front of her. I don't think that's a basis for disqualifying her. And by the way, I do think uh, it's important not to just sort of dismiss Judge Cannon because she did rule in Trump's favor and she was overruled on the special master issue. But she's a serious, accomplished She worked at an elite law firm. She was a federal prosecutor in this district, the Southern District of Florida, for seven years. And she's been on the bench. She's a new ish federal judge. But I think there's a little bit too much willingness to just write her off because she got reversed on that one case. And by the way, federal judges, district court judges, find me a federal district court judge who's not been reversed. Many, many times. So that, I don't think, I is think a basis to remove her either. Well, Maybe. you know,
5: people, I, I often hear from judges who are yeah. very critical of the media on this point. And so I want to almost vocalize this point. We often say things like, this appointee, or right. even the Supreme Court will talk about the so-called conservative wing versus the liberal wing. We'll talk about these issues. And we can oftentimes be accused of, and I think rightly so, contributing to a perception that there is, they are not an apolitical branch. They don't help themselves in a lot of issues as well. I'll put that out there. But on a good day, even without any of the perceptions of political bias or perceptions of um, who, to whom she may be beholden, Judges have an extraordinary impact on cases. They'll tell you about the voir dire process of what, what type of questions are going to come in, how you determine impartiality, evidentiary motions of what's coming in or out, whether Evan, Cor- Evan Corcoran's testimony as the attorney whose client privilege was pierced is going to be able to actually say that in court. The idea of um, even the process of objections, overruling or sustaining them, directed verdicts, I mean, that's that's before you even talk about who nominated. So, so I have an extraordinary presence nonetheless, but the question of this, the schedule will be one of the That's most it. important things in the rocket docket. Don't you think? Yeah,
15: I agree. I agree with everything Laura just said. And the number one thing that judge cannon is going to decide is when do we do this case? That is really the judge's purview. And if she wants to be aggressive and if she feels it's important to get this in before the election, she can try to get it in, in early 2024. Keep in mind, we have that Manhattan day in March into April and If not, if she doesn't care to, she can very easily let this slide till after the election. That, to me, is the most important thing that she'll get to decide.
0: Final thought?
26: Well, I think when you look at all of these investigations going on, this one faces that other additional challenge, which is now the intelligence community has to step in and say, this is the balancing act. These documents were so sensitive, so secret, and the defense is going to say, prove it. The jury's going to want to see it. And then if you can show it to the jury, were they actually that secret? So they're going to have to go through this process of figuring out for each document what what was the part of that document that made it so sensitive. And if you can redact that source or that method, can you still use the rest of it to show the weight of it?
1: All right, guys, great stuff. Stay around with us. We have many more questions to come. Also, House Republicans are moving to censure one of Trump's fiercest congressional critics over something from 2016. That, Congressman Adam Schiff will join us ahead of that vote coming up next. Well, just one day after Donald Trump's arraignment, one of his fiercest congressional critics is facing a censure vote from House Republicans.
9: Representative Schiff contributed to the gross violations of a United States citizen's civil liberties, thereby, thereby committing the very abuses the HPSCI is tasked with identifying and thwarting.
1: That's Florida Congresswoman and Donald Trump loyalist Anna Paulina Luna blasting former House Intelligence Committee chairman Adam Schiff accusing him of lying about Trump's alleged ties to the Russia to Russia in the run-up to the 2016 election. Now, censure is essentially public scolding of a member of the House that's read into the official record. The vote could come as early as today or tomorrow. Schiff, says Luna's censure bid, is nothing more than a distraction from Trump's indictment and arrest. Republican leadership doesn't think they're going to have the votes to actually get this across the finish line, even though they hold the majority, but we're going to ask... Congressman himself, Democratic congressman from California, Adam Schiff, joins us now. He's also running for the Senate seat held by the retiring Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much for being here. I want to start with what happened yesterday before we talk about the the censure effort uh, in that what the former president was saying about an absolute right to take documents uh, that he wanted, no matter the document, that appears to be at odd with several different issues laid out in the indictment. How do you expect prosecutors to actually handle that defense if it's what his lawyers bring?
21: Well, I think it'll be handled pretty easily, actually, because the law is clear. Uh, They are not his documents. They belong to the United States of America. Some of those documents involve highly classified data uh, and information that could jeopardize uh, our sources of intelligence collection. Uh, That's going to be a pretty easy case to make. But, of course, Trump is trying to make his case in the court of public opinion, And doing what he always does, uh, which is playing the victim, uh, misrepresenting the facts uh, and hoping that he can at least persuade those that uh, are part of the extreme MAGA base. Uh, But in the courtroom, it's going to be a different story Uh, there. There are going to be rules of evidence uh, and prosecutors are going to be able to use these comments uh, as evidence against him.
0: They are. You saying, Congressman, that this will be an easy case to make. Do you think are you saying that this is a slam dunk? for Jack Smith's team of prosecutors, especially given the jury pool that they're gonna select from in South Florida and just what we've seen in terms of how South Florida has treated political defendants in the past?
21: No, I'm saying that the case to make that these are not his documents is easy to make. Uh, Whether it's easy to get a conviction when you're trying a former president and you're trying a, a candidate for president in the current election, That's a very different issue, uh, and I don't underestimate the difficulty of that, because Mm -hmm. as the defense, you need to try to peel off one juror. But nonetheless, the facts set out in the indictment, uh, if proven, are devastating, because, of course, they show such premeditation on Trump's part. Uh, This wasn't an accident. They didn't just end up there by some inadvertence. This was deliberate. Uh, It was a deliberate effort to mislead investigators, he used his own attorneys to try to deceive the federal, uh, the FBI. Uh, and those facts, uh, presumably, uh, Jack Smith will be able to establish in court. Uh, they're much worse, much more damning than I was expecting. And I think that's true for for most former prosecutors. I'm putting that hat on right now who read the indictment.
1: Congressman, most former prosecutors are very wary of uh, questioning a, a judge uh, or attacking a judge in a particular yeah. case. Um, I'm interested, some of your Democratic colleagues uh, have raised concerns about the judge uh, that will be involved in this case, Eileen Cannon. Uh, do you share those concerns, given some of the authority she'll have, particularly at the early stages of this process?
21: I do share those concerns, and I agree with the analysis that you all made, that the fact that she was appointed by Trump is not a basis in and of itself for disqualification, nor is the fact that she got overturned on appeal but what concerns me is why she was overturned on appeal, was the extraordinary uh, nature of the ruling that she made, the appointment of a special master, that, the degree to which that was unprecedented, uh, and you had even a conservative court reverse her. So it's not just that she was reversed, but the fact that she uh, endeavored in, in such an unusual way to assist the Trump defense, that's what concerns me
0: in terms of blocking which of those documents taken from Mar-a-Lago could be be viewed by the team at that time. And it was the 11th Circuit unanimously, I believe, including two Trump appointees who did come down and reverse her holding. But do you believe that she should recuse herself, given your concern? Because Dick Durbin, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, says he's concerned, but not to the point of recusal.
21: Well, I think ultimately that's a decision the judge is going to have to make. Uh, But the, the standard ought to be this will the public have confidence uh, in her rulings Uh, or will the public believe that if again as she did in the appointment of the special master uh, she is going too far to support the trump defense essentially ignoring precedent doing things that are uh, unsupported by law uh, will she have credibility and Mm -hmm. if the answer is no then maybe she should recuse herself
1: no congressman uh, a number of your Republican counterparts are saying this uh, is representative of a double standard. And I think there's elements of that where you'd say this is not an apples to apples comparison whatsoever. However, it is true that the investigation into the current president's son has been going on for years now. Um, Do you think the Justice Department is dragging its feet on that investigation? I ask because addressing that on its merits would seem to be important when it comes to trying to rebut that criticism if you think it should be rebutted.
21: Well, you know, of course, I don't have any insight into what the Justice Department is doing or the pace of what they're doing vis-a-vis the president's son. But you could, uh, of course, make the same argument. uh, And I have, frankly, the same concern regarding the investigation into January 6th. Those events are now more than two years in the rearview mirror. Uh, The January 6th committee that I served on Uh, We investigated that and were in many respects way out ahead of the Justice Department in our interviewing of witnesses, in our gathering of documents. That should not have been the case. Uh, So I don't know that you can judge based on the pace of investigation. The Mar-a-Lago case is very discreet. It has a very discreet set of facts. It was more capable investigating more rapidly. And they got to the point where they could make a decision. Uh, I would uh, hope and expect they'll make a decision on these other cases uh, with with due speed as well,
0: Congressman. Let's talk about the the censure effort by a Republican colleague that could go to a vote today. Uh, the, the focus of it is what you said about alleged collusion between Trump and Russia over the years. Let's just play a reminder for viewers of some of the things you said, and then I want your reaction to the censure effort on the other side.
21: Collusion between the Trump campaign. Uh, and uh, Russia. It's either an extraordinary, extraordinary coincidence or it's what collusion looks like. You can see evidence in plain sight uh, on the issue of collusion, pretty compelling evidence. The Russian government effort to help elect Donald Trump. Multiple offers of Russian help to the Trump campaign, the campaign's acceptance of that help, and overt acts in furtherance of Russian help. To most Americans, that is the very definition of collusion.
0: Have you seen the text of what she has put forth that will be voted on? And what is your reaction just in general to this call?
21: Well, first of all, those all those statements are exactly right. Um, I have seen the text of the resolution. It's kind of a grab bag of uh, Fox attacks. It goes to Russia and Ukraine. It's essentially a central resolution based on the fact I investigated uh, and led the first impeachment of Donald Trump, Trump to a bipartisan vote to convict Uh, That's really the grabment of of their uh, complaint. Uh, But this is really an effort uh, at the end of the day to distract from Donald Trump's legal problems, to gratify Donald Trump by going after someone they feel was his most effective adversary. Uh, I'm flattered by it, but the fact Mm. that Speaker McCarthy would take up this MAGA resolution when we have so many pressing challenges before the country Uh, is really a terrible abuse of House resources.
1: My understanding in talking to Republican aides is that they don't think it will pass, despite them having the majority. Is that your understanding? you Have been whipping this vote, or are you just letting it play out?
21: Uh, I'm not whipping it. Uh, I don't know where the votes are, frankly. You know, I think that who is whipping it is people like Steve Bannon. Uh, The president's MAGA advocates uh, are really championing this thing. Uh, How many Republicans, if any, will stand up to the Bannons and the Trumps and the MAGA world, I really don't know. But I can say this, you know, the Speaker is the one who decides to bring this before the House. Uh, And the fact that we have so many pressing challenges in California, in our home state, uh, with opioids, with college debt, with homelessness. uh, And this is how Kevin McCarthy wants to spend the time of the House Uh, It just goes to show where his priorities are. And right now, his priorities are distracting from the dysfunction of his own House membership uh, and distracting from the pressing legal problems of his party leader, Donald Trump.
1: All right, Congressman Adam Schiff, appreciate your time, sir. Thanks. Thank you. All right, new inflation data is about to be released ahead of the Federal Reserve's upcoming decision on rate hikes. We'll bring you those numbers coming up next.
0: And new this morning we're learning that the armor on the Russ movie set was allegedly quote, "drinking heavily during filming the state of mind, prosecutors say when she was when the loaded gun was used in the shooting.
1: new this morning, a court filing reveals witnesses to the Rust movie set shooting will testify that armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed was, quote, drinking heavily and smoking marijuana during filming. Special prosecutors say she was likely hungover when she inserted a live bullet into a gun that she knew was going to be used by an actor. Alec Baldwin then accidentally shot and killed a cinematographer. CNN's Chloe Malas joins us now. Chloe, wow, what else do we know here?
19: Well, you know, there is this criminal trial that is looming, and the charges of manslaughter against Alec Baldwin were dismissed in April. But in this filing, they also say that they have the right to bring charges back against Alec Baldwin, depending on what they find out about the gun. Now, Hannah Gutierrez mm. Reed, who is going to be facing this trial um, in this new filing from Friday, I want to read to you a little bit of what the special prosecutors have written here. They say witnesses in the current case will testify that defendant Gutierrez was drinking heavily and smoking marijuana in the evenings during the shooting of Rust. It is likely that defendant Gutierrez was hungover when she inserted a live bullet into a gun that she knew was going to be used at some point by an actor while filming a shooting scene with other actors and crew members. So what's significant about this is that all along the way, for the last two years, um, almost two years, when we've been trying to figure out how did a live bullet get on the set? There was never supposed to be live bullets. It was always supposed to be dummy rounds. And there have have been all these questions about the chain of command because the assistant director and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed have both maintained that they did not load the gun and that they did not hand the gun to Alec Baldwin. So these are things that hopefully will be become clearer when this all goes to trial. And again, I've reached out to Alec Baldwin's legal team to ask them what they think about the fact that criminal charges could actually come back Mm. and they're not commenting.
0: What about her legal team?
19: So her legal team has come out swinging against this. Um, They have said that you know, this is not true. They have maintained Hannah Gutierrez Reed's innocence um, and that they will fight these charges. They say that the prosecution has abandoned the idea of doing justice and getting to the actual truth, apparently. So, more to come on this. And again, this criminal trial is looming.
1: All right, Chloe, re reporting as always. Keep us posted.
19: Obviously, we can't forget the life lost in all of this. Exactly. This just in, some key data on
0: inflation. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, here with more. Why are you shaking your head? It's
7: a really good number, you guys. This is factory-level inflation. So this is before you get the goods on the grocery store or at the big box store. This is the factory floor where it's made. Uh, Over the past 12 months, inflation there on the factory floor, 1.1%. That is below pre-pandemic levels, guys. That, that is below wow. pre-pandemic levels. And month over month, inflation fell. Prices fell 0.3%. Um, overall, that, uh, that annual number is um, the slowest inflation growth since December 2020. And you can see there 11 months in a row now of cooling factory-level inflation. So this is a sign that all that work from the Federal Reserve is working. And I think this is another data point that... That would suggest that the Fed doesn't have to pause today. So no news from the Fed Wait, today to will be or big. Does pause? doesn't pause ha- does have to pause? Does have to pause. Does pause. Thank okay. you, sir. Um, but this is like no news from the Fed today will be big news. Uh, indeed, it will show that the Fed thinks that yeah. inflation is cool.
11: Paul, pause. Paul,
0: pause. 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 pause.
1: How, how good
0: problems. is this for the Biden White House, though? It might not have been transitory, but it's coming down.
1: I mean, the speed with which it's happening after it felt like it was never actually happening in a tangible way, um, yeah. this, is, this is huge.
0: I mean, there's some who are looking.
1: People the, care who, about the economy.
7: Yes. and But look, people looking at some of these core numbers that are still elevated, right, especially in core CPI yesterday. Yeah. But that's not troubling the White House very much here because they're looking at their numbers that sees, you know, used cars and shelter prices coming down in the fall. And so they're thinking that we're on the right track here, stable in the economy and cooling inflation. That, that's, what, that's what everybody wants to see here.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Roman. You're welcome. You very much. Ahead, CNN crews are on the front lines of Ukraine's counteroffensive. It is stunning the moment our crews duck for cover as the fight against Russia intensifies.
1: We'll take you there live. Stay with us. We've got some new reporting this morning. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will officially head to Beijing this weekend. A significant trip that comes as the Biden administration navigates its tense and complicated relationship with China. He was slated to head there in early February, but rescheduled because of that infamous surveillance balloon incident. A State Department spokesperson says, quote, Secretary Blinken will meet with senior Chinese officials where he will discuss the importance of maintaining open lines of communication to responsibly manage the U.S. PRC
4: relationship.
0: Meantime, Ukraine has now launched its much-anticipated counteroffensive against Russian forces, and CNN is the first American network to get access to Ukraine's frontline troops. In this opening stage of that offensive, our senior international correspondent, Fred Pleicton, joins us live in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. And you cannot imagine, unless Mm. we were you and your team, what it is like to be on the front lines of this and what happened when you were filming. Mm.
16: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Poppy. It certainly is pretty tough going for the Ukrainians there. They do say that they are making advances on those front lines, by the way, in part also because of the modern Western weapons and U.S. weapons that they've been receiving. But there is also really fierce Russian resistance with the Russians pelting the Ukrainians with artillery, but also using combat jets as well. Here's what we witnessed. Ukrainian forces firing at Russian troops hold up in Blagodatne in South Ukraine. This video, the brigade says, shows the Russians making a final stand here. Much of the area near the front lines, deeply scarred by combat. This is the area of Ukraine where the heaviest fighting is currently taking place. And you can see what it's done to a lot of the buildings and the cities and villages around this area. And that fighting is set to get even worse. We're with the 68th Jaeger Brigade, which has been making important gains here. The soldiers, confident and grateful for U.S. supply gear. A lot of the times it saved my life, he says. It saves our lives every day from shrapnel, shelling and bullets. But some of the vehicles have already been lost and the Russians continue to fire back. Constant artillery shelling and even airstrikes too close for comfort as our crew had to duck for cover. deputy brigade commander says his soldiers are just getting started. <laughs> our counterattack will definitely be successful, he says. We believe in victory. We are moving forward towards our goal. We are advancing. On this part of the front line, the Ukrainians believe they have the gear, the manpower and the determination to advance far into Russian-held territory. So you can see there, Poppy, that's the situation on one part of this very large front line. Of course, there's other areas where the going is equally tough for the Ukrainians. One of the things that we've seen is they do have those initial successes, though. They've managed to push into a couple of villages south of the area where we were there. However, they are also still facing some pretty tough Russian defenses. Those are layered defenses. And so the Ukrainians say they know if anything for them, the going is going to get even tougher,
1: Poppy,
0: Really remarkable reporting to be there. Fred, thank you to you and your team.
1: All right, coming up ahead, our coverage, the former president's arraignment and arrest continues. What's next? Most importantly, what precedent could this set?
2: I hadn't had a chance to go through all the boxes. It's a long, tedious job. It takes a long time, which I was prepared to do, but I have a very busy life.
0: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
1: You are looking at... How beautiful that is. New York, Atlanta, Miami. These three things well, are I'm connected. glad they didn't One, make... because there yeah. are places where investigations have either brought indictments or could <laughs> bring indictments to the former president. But also, they have been places where uh, the law enforcement based in Atlanta, Fulton County, has visited these other two places to get so a sense of things. I want to bring back our panel in and, and start with that, John Miller, because I, I do think it's fascinating. We saw this reporting Uh, from our team, that they're on the ground. they were on the ground in New York. I wasn't aware of that. They're on the ground in Miami learning, trying to put together kind of a playbook for something where there is none to some degree at this point.
26: Well, now there's two, and that's to their benefit. But this is um, a relatively common process. When the Pope came to New York, his next stop was Philadelphia. Um, I invited my Philadelphia PD colleagues to New Hmm. York to ride with us literally through the entire event to pick up whatever they could pick up that could be useful. Um, In this case, the questions are, how do you get a president, a former president, in and out of a courthouse? What are the things you do that are different? In this case, the answer is, yes, you mag everybody coming in the front door, but then you re-mag them on the floor before they go into that courtroom in case something was missed. How do you use the motorcycles as outriders to, you know, cover the route? Um, they they studied what New York did with the barrier configuration. They looked they looked at what Miami did with without the same barrier configuration by using cars. And this is because the district attorney running the Georgia case that President Trump is one of the targets of uh, sent a letter out to the sheriff saying, in the next term, uh, the next court term between July 11th and September 1st, we're likely to have charging decisions. So. They know that clock is ticking.:
15: I just sound mm-hmm. a, a note of appreciation here for the authorities law enforcement officers, cops, court security officers in New York and Miami two very difficult situations, and both of them went exactly as they should. People exercised their First Amendment rights agra- at times loudly, in colorful ways, but peacefully and lawfully, and everyone was kept safe and secure. And especially court security officers, Laura knows how important they are, and they often get underappreciated. So, a, a note of, of gratitude to them.
5: Absolutely. Also, why am I so much shorter than you in this camera right now? I just saw it for a second, <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to scoop my I up. like yeah, you're six sure. inches taller than I'm me. I'm going to scoop my posture up for a second and say the next thing. Um, <laughs> this is really more than just a dry run. I mean, they, this is now, it might be the third time. They're also looking at the notion of what the crowd was like. What was the fervor? was there a propensity for violence? Don't forget there's online chatter to consider ever since January 6th as well, the coordinated events. What you saw on January 6th, for example, compared to what you see for sort of ad hoc protests, what coordination might be looming on these different notions. It's also the reason why we're going to hear less and less information from people who might be in the courtroom in the sense of, we didn't know that Jack Smith was going to be there until the very last minute inside the courthouse. There's safety considerations for that as well. As the rhetoric becomes increasingly more toxic, watch for the prosecutors to be more on guard about the divulging of information, the appearances and whatnot, which really is a problem for not only the sunshine laws, but also what we as the public would like to hear about an open and transparent court proceeding. That's one way to get due process, you have to be able to have information. And so the more there is security risk, the more that we are at risk of not getting the information.
15: This is, I'm sorry, i got to do my high horse again, which Laura and I were just talking it's about.
5: High, it's high. Look well, at the literally high horse. Right now. <laughs> but, but, but
15: also my figurative high horse about courtroom access, right? Court proceedings are public. Anyone can walk into a courtroom. Our high school interns had to wait online. We live in... 2023, there is no reason on earth why court proceedings should not be at least broadcast audio-wise. And the federal court, Supreme Court has The Supreme audio. Court. Right. The only federal court that allows any kind of live feed is the Supreme Court. And they were only because they were forced into yeah. it by COVID. The federal courts, I would argue cameras maybe should be allowed in there, but that's another fight. Let us see this. We need to see this exactly the reasons Laura said it. We can see it. And they're just so old-fashioned, they won't let and us And when in. we don't see it,
5: though, that's where you've got the opportunities yeah. to... Um, create a narrative and say what was really said. And it's so hard, as we all know, to disprove the negative, as in, well, that's what really happened. And so the prosecutors also want to hear the information. They're in the room where it happens. But these different events, campaign-wise, are also a moment for us to hear what might be being said, just not on the record.
15: For sure. And by the way, this is good times for courtroom sketch artists. Um, There was Mm -hmm. the sketch yesterday. I don't know if we have that. But we're going to be covering this like it's 1920, Mm -hmm. because we're going to get a typed-up transcript At the end of the day, just hundreds of pages per day that we're going to have to go through. And so this is the only visual we're going to say, and I have to say a word about the sketch. This is the most generous sketch artist in the history of sketches because I have been sketched. I'm not talking about Donald Trump. Let me be clear. I've been sketched, and it ain't good. Maybe that's my fault. But the other people in here, I know some of them. Those are very generous. Okay.
1: I want that sketch artist next time I go into okay. court. <laughs> Me
5: it's too. It's <laughs> um, uh, Go ahead.
1: We've got 10 seconds left. What should we be looking for in that one thing that you're looking for going
26: forward right now? Is how do they coordinate these cases? Because if this becomes a chain reaction crash where, you know, everybody puts on the brakes and this stretches out forever and ever, uh, one, of these, one of these cases has to be selected first. to go first.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting point I hadn't thought of. Um, Laura, Ellie, John, thank you thank guys you. for hanging out and making us smarter. I appreciate it.
0: Amen to that. New York City is setting a minimum wage for food delivery workers. What's driving this decision? Harry Anton here with The Morning Number on a beautiful day here in New York City. All right. So New York City is now setting a minimum wage for food delivery workers. CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton has this morning's number. Good morning. What is it?
20: Good morning. All right, this morning's number is 17.96. That's New York City's minimum wage starting on July 12th for app-based delivery workers, not counting tips. So why are they boosting it up to 17.96 per hour? Here's the reason why. So this is the math behind New York City's decision. These delivery workers were only making $11 an average per hour after you take into account both tips and expenses. It's quite expensive to be a food delivery driver right in the city. And that, of course, is well south of the $15 minimum wage for the city's non-tip workers. So they're boosting it up to actually get people up to the minimum wage.
1: Wait, the $11 includes tips. Yes. I'm sorry, people like not... Tipping that? No,
20: it it's, includes tips, but it's also the expenses, right? So, you right, know, but you might. What's have to... the
1: effect? What I'm asking is are people just not tipping that the, much? J- yes. That? Okay.
20: So, here's the situation. Look at this. Americans who are always uh, d- tipping on their food deliveries. Look at this. Back in August of 2019, it was 63%. Look at where we are today. It's 50%. We've seen a steady decline. And this is part of an environment in which Americans are tipping less. So, this is average tipping across five different categories. Back in August of 2019, it was 48%. Look totally. at where we are today. 41% are always tipping. Of course, there is the tipping conundrum, right? 66% of Americans hold a negative view of tipping, but just 16% of Americans are willing to pay more to end tipping. You got to...
1: How many of those 66% work jobs where you need to Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's, right. that's exactly the right. Oh, these are know, people, who may, people
20: who people who don't guys. recognize that these folks need the tips based upon what they're paid uh, under You
0: heard me say totally because... Our friend in the control room just said they were our heroes during COVID. And that's true. Yes. They were on the front lines during all this. True story. I decided that I loved my husband when, like 20 years ago, he gave a 50% tip on the bill on, like, the first night we went out, and he was mm-hmm. not making a lot of money. Good heart, right? Yeah. He hey, does that, 66%. too.
1: 66%. You wanted advice from Poppy. <laughs> Are
0: you married? <laughs> Good I think job, said, babe. that was the idea with that. Harry, <laughs> hey, appreciate it. Thank
1: you, thank you very thank you. much. And CNN News Central starts right now.
0: That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
16: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.